We made this. Welcome back, everyone, to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and television and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. The name's Black, Tony Black. The name's Wilson, Sean Wilson. Oh, how suave are we? And in this episode, (laughs) discussing the music of September of 2021 and specifically the music of James Bond, we will be talking about the work of composers including Hans Zimmer, David Arnold, the great John Barry and more. So, yeah, this month is Bond Month, isn't it? And, you know, we, we, we were going to talk, Sean, about a few other bits and bobs as well, you know, a few other scores, all of which are good and, and things like that. But we had to sort of, you know, uh, go deep on Bond, didn't we, this month? Because, you know, it's the, it's the conversation everyone's having. Yeah, we've only waited two years for it. And it's just absolutely immense that it's finally here. Bearing in mind that, as, as I as I remember it, that this film was actually meant to have come out at the end. No Time to Die was meant to have come out at the end of 2019, wasn't it? Pre pre COVID, um, pre pandemic, and then they pushed it back to two different dates in 2020, and and then it it fell foul of, of of the pandemic, obviously. But yeah, the fact that it's here, the fact that Hans Zimmer is scoring it, just feels like even more of a monumental event than it would have been when it originally came was scheduled to come out. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's funny that but yeah it's obviously dominating all the headlines it's everywhere and you know bond mania and i, I think it part of the pro- it wasn't just covid that delayed it i think i think it was that originally danny boyle was supposed to direct it and then they had a lot of problems with the script and direction and they changed a lot of things and you know making a bomb film never seems to be simple anymore it seems to be a long torturous process each time so they yeah. uh they, they took their time really with this and then obviously yeah covid happened and originally, the guy who was supposed to score No Time to Die was a guy called Dan Roma, who's done, who did Luca, which we talked about a few months ago, and uh, various other things. And then I don't quite know what happened there. Whether he produced, you might know this, Sean. Whether he produced a score and it didn't work, or they they then decided to just bring Hans Zimmer in. But it wasn't necessarily going to be what what we've ended up with. Uh, which, just to say, we will talk about much more at the end of this podcast. We're going to make you wait slightly, but. Um, yeah, it wasn't quite what was originally planned. So it's just been a long time getting to the point where we've finally got it in our ears. Yeah, I don't know what happened with Dan Roma. I interviewed Dan Roma for Luca earlier this year, but I didn't ask him about Bond because I didn't know if it, because the film obviously wasn't out at that point. And I didn't know whether it might have been politically sensitive or not to talk about it. And obviously you don't want to, you know, you don't want to draw on what a composer hasn't done. You want to talk about the project that they've got in front of you at the time. I honestly don't know what happened with that uh, I mean Dan Roma is not famous for big bombastic Bond scores mind you he'd never scored a Pixar movie before Luca and he did a brilliant job with that so I just think it was probably differing creative visions I think it because it was Daniel Craig's last movie maybe they wanted the scope and the expanse of the music to be bigger than Roma was capable of, of giving I, I don't mm. know I mean it could be any number of reasons for it I mean one might also say that in you know, in relative terms, Hans Zimmer is like the rock star of film music, and if you bring Hans Zimmer into it, it brings a certain level of awareness 
and prestige to it. I mean, this is me spitballing. I honestly don't know. I think you're probably on the right lines there in many ways. It sounds like that would be a situation that would happen, you know, for what is ostensibly a finale. And, you know, we will we will get into this. We're going to get into No Time to Die in some detail and talk about that. But it's just great that it's here. It's great that it's finally arrived. It is, I think, part of the cinematic boost we need. You know, we've spent a long time waiting for these kind of movies to come out. And over the next three or four months, we're going to get quite a few in big succession. This, things like Denis Villeneuve's Dune, things like The Matrix 4. You know, there's lots of these big movies that people have been waiting for for a while, some of which have been delayed that are starting to trickle out now. So, yeah, I think um, Bond is, is all, in a way, the first big one. And, you know, hopefully, and it seems to have shown, hopefully it will have done well enough as well, um, even with all the delays and COVID and all the worries and all that kind of thing. Well, apparently pre-sale box office is rivaling Avengers Endgame. That's what I read online, which is pretty amazing. (laughs) It's probably not all that surprising, particularly in the UK, because I was thinking about this recently. Bond is probably the last bastion of British movie franchises, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. I can't think of any others now, because Harry Potter has finished, whether that was truly British, one could probably argue that. Uh, It's probably more owing more to Hollywood, although obviously Bond has now gone more over to Hollywood as well. But, I mean, Bond is essentially a UK institution, and it's no wonder that people have come out in support of it. I've had so many conversations with people saying... That, you know, people who've been quite apathetic towards going to the cinema, even since they've reopened, you know, earlier in 2021. And yet they've been seduced by the by the prospect of watching Bond on the big screen because there is something very irresistible and nostalgic and enduring about that franchise. And that carries over into the music as well, wouldn't you think? Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. I completely agree. And I, th- I think it is it is still a very British institution. And, you know, people like us, we're not nationalist flag waving you know you know rule britannia last night the proms kind of people but there is something about bond that is quite treasure i treasure as as a british person in a way and and yes there is it's always been transatlantic because it was made by originally by two american producers bond has always had one foot in both camps in many ways you know but the films always retain that level of britishness that level of you know, very well. I mean, you know, in recent years, you had Skyfall, which really sort of doubled down on that. You know, in re- in the Daniel Craig years, you've had so much more of the action set in England than you ever had in the previous era of films. So there is something to treasure about Bond and how it, it kind of feels like a real treat. And we you know, we get it, we get it first. You know, in the UK, which is a rarity. You know, in in the US, it's not out till the eighth. It's always a week later, even in America. So that that is that is unique. There's, I don't I can't think of any other franchise that really does that. So it and it, it's it's like it's protected for British audiences in a way. And I think that that is lovely. And it means that you consistently get such fervor. But I think it's particularly after the pandemic for No Time to Die particularly high again. A bit a bit like with Skyfall, with the because obviously that tied in with the Olympics and that tied in with a sense of real British optimism. And I think that's what gave that a million a billion dollar boost. And to be fair, I think. I don't. No time to die is not going to make that kind of money for obvious reasons. But I think comparatively, in terms of COVID, I think it's going to do extremely well. Probably better than any almost anything else. It might even beat Shang Chi. Although to be fair, that's got the boost from China. I think probably as well is probably why it's been a bit of a monster hit. So who knows? But I think comparatively, it will be a huge sensation because 
it's not just that it's a new Bond film, it's that we've had to wait such a long time and it feels a little bit like, oh, this is great. <laughs> this yeah. is normality back again, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, we wait and see how big the box office will, will be. I mean, early, early indications are very good. Obviously, you have to scale down your box office expectations during mm. the period we're currently living through. I read somewhere online that in order to qualify as, as a solid success, it has to take $900 million. I mean, whether it takes that or not, I, I, I doubt nah, that very it? much. But, no, it won't. I doubt but, that, no. I, I re- I'm really glad that you cited uh, Skyfall there and Skyfall and the way that Skyfall basically reflects on and deconstructs the idea of Britishness. I mean, you think of the, the Tennyson um, sequence where mm. M. Judy Dench quotes Tennyson during the inquiry just before she's attacked by Silver, Javier Bardem, and then you've got Bond, Daniel Craig, beleaguered, battered, down but not out who's been shot, retired from active service, drawn back into active service. He is now being drawn back into the fold to basically protect his matriarchal mother figure, M. And Queen and Country is really put to the test in the most like extraordinary ways possible. And you get that remarkable sequence where she starts quoting Tennyson and Thomas Newman's brilliant music starts to rise in the background. And you do get a real sense of, you know, the idea of... Um, empire and queen and country being really being put through the ringer but bond as the emblem of that is kind of beleaguered but is virtuous and can fight through it and i think the music in that sequence particularly just captures that and then of course it leads into that fantastic action sequence where thomas newman does actually bring the bond theme into it like really resonant just just one of many examples of how brilliantly music can get under the skin of a bond film and really articulate it i think yeah, I think that's it. Let's talk a bit about that then, because what we're going to do in this episode, we are going to have a couple of little uh, non-Bond films to just talk about things that stood out over September. But we're gonna we're gonna choose. We've gone with our retro picks, which we kind of doing in this new format. We're doing we we've gone for Bond retro picks in this case. So I've picked one, you've picked one. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna work through, do both of those, intersperse with some other non-Bond stuff, and then finish by really doubling down on Hans Zimmer and No Time to Die. So. We'll start with my retro pick, which is going back to the first Daniel Craig movie, the one that begins this five-picture story, essentially, Casino Royale from 2006, uh, scored by David Arnold. Now, I think that this is... I think this is David Arnold's best Bond score myself. He obviously came in after the the travesty that was Eric Serra's golden (laughs) eye. Jesus, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which has which only has one truly good piece of music in Goldeneye, and that's not done by him. That's oh. the tanks, the tank chase bit. Yeah, that was John Altman, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah Can I John just Altman. say, sorry to interrupt. David Arnold did actually recently come out in support of Eric Serra's score for Goldeneye, saying it was very audacious and very strange, and he kind of admired the fact that Eric Serra got away with that. So I think fair enough. That shows a great deal of humility on on David Arnold's yeah. part. But anyway. No, yeah, and he seems a lovely man, David Arnold. And, he is. Um, I've I mean, spoken had... to him. He's really funny, like really funny, really nice person. Really knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah. he's great. Yeah, he he really seems that way, and I think he's got a lot of humility. And in fact, it's really nice that how much Hans Zimmer loves him as well. That they're good friends, and he's on the official No Time to Die podcast, which I'd encourage anyone to listen to because it's great. Hans Zimmer talks about how much. For the new score, he was a bit inspired by not just what John Barry did, but what David Arnold did in his music. And I think I think you can see that, and obviously we'll get to that later. But Arnold obviously did Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, 
And with Die Another Day, he really did write a score that reflected that bonkers, ridiculous film. Because <laughs> it went very <laughs> electronic and whoop, whoop kind of thing. But then with the Casino, he really is able to bring it down. Like the film brings the franchise back to earth. You know, it strips out all the gadgets. It takes it back to the origin story. of. It does the first true origin story of James Bond, you know, in, in the comic book vein. And it strips him back to first principles. No gadgets, no, you know team around him all that stuff and the music is able I think to get back to being not just quite a brooding in places score to reflect and and dark and edge score to reflect Daniel Craig but also a really lyrical beautiful one I mean the track that always stands out to me is City of Lovers where Bond arrives and Vesper arrive in Venice and it is it's pure John Barry that is in many ways but but not not a complete ripoff it has it's Arnold taking all of the kind of things we've seen him do, not just in Bond, but in all of the big blockbusters he's done in the 90s and, and, and things like Stargate and Independence Day and all these other films he scored, but brewing it up into a definably Bond sound. And I think, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see him come back in the next Bond era, David Arnold. It'd be great to see him do another one. But I think of the five he did... I, I, for me, Casino Royale is the pinnacle, and I think it's just a beautiful piece of music. I, I, where do you sit on on Casino score, Sean? I I love the Casino Royale score. It's a very very close run thing between this and Tomorrow Never Dies. I have to be honest. I love the score for Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes. Whatever one thinks about the film, the score is fantastic. It is. Um, I agree. You know that was Arnold, as you said, that was Arnold's debut score. It's got such a swaggering sense of pizzazz, like brilliant. Yeah mixture of um, jazz orchestra electronics everything comes together in that but the casino royale score is fabulous i mean it is really interesting going back and listening to it again i mean i think with the greatest respect to david arnold who i respect very much as an artist and, and as a composer when you listen to die another day it was quite clear that he was running on fumes in that one <laughs> i think um mm. there there really isn't there's a lot of like, like awful like synthetic yeah. effects in it like drum pads and it's not entirely his fault because let's face it the film was an absolute load of donkey bollocks let's be completely <laughs> frank about that it was no, terrible that's a quote that's a quote from the poster <laughs> yeah, put it on the poster <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think when a composer is faced with a travesty of a film like that there's only so much they can do that's not to say there weren't good things in the Dying of the Day score because there were I mean the romantic sections are really great you know whenever the Bond theme turns up it obviously induces a sense of nostalgia but like you said quite correctly about Casino Royale stripped everything back to the basics in terms of the story in terms of the portrayal of Bond in terms of the gadgets and also in terms of the music and it basically allowed David Arnold to completely reset the clock and to really again favour the organic quality of the orchestra with some supporting electronics there are electronic elements in it but they're more subtle and they're much better integrated within the fabric of the orchestra. This is a, this is a score that re- relies on the organic quality of the orchestra primarily because what you're dealing with is a bond that, perish the thought, actually feels like a human being, which mm. is <laughs> what the brilliance of what Daniel Craig did with it. A bond who, like the, like the original Ian Fleming source, is flawed and fallible. He's not perfect. He's not indestructible. In many ways, he's just, he's as damaged and disturbed as the people that he's chasing. And Daniel Craig did such a brilliant job reinstating those qualities. And I think David Arnold is quite clearly inspired by that in the Casino Royale score. I think it's a score that's got a tremendous sense of empathy in the love sequences. I mean, the first emergence of the Bond Vesper love theme in the shower scene when he he comforts her 
then calms her down, just brims with such a heartbreaking sense of empathy, all the more mm. so when you know mm. what happens at the end of the film. The action sequences are tremendous. I mean, I, I watched the airport chase sequence again the other day. And I mean, oh, that's that, amazing. It's just it's just brilliant. I mean, that whole action set piece goes on for 12 minutes on David Arnold's score. And when you is get that the, Miami International, that, that, that that's, that's the, the one. Trick, yeah, yeah. It's Miami International. Stuff. It's yeah. just amazing. I mean, when you yeah. get that that John Barry style brassy reveal of the airplane coming out of the hangar and you think, oh, right yeah. now, you, now we know what the terrorist target is going to be. And then all of a sudden the tension steps up. And you've got those very frenetic orchestrations that go right the way back to Tomorrow Never Dies and obviously outside of Bond go all the way back to Independence Day and Stargate, like you said. Um, It's quite clear when a composer is inspired by the material that they're working with. And yeah, I I really like the Casino Royale score. I mean, it hits quite a diverse amount of registers. I mean, there's the Dirty Martini track when the chief Mm. Mads Mikkelsen Mads Mikkelsen's character poisons Bond and you get those very Bernard Herman-esque strings which almost goes into like horror territory yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a terrific score apparently post-production on it was very very stressed apparently the post-production process was very accelerated which might account for why I think the Casino Royale score does in the eyes of some people flip-flop quite overtly between David Arnold style theatrics and John Barry style romanticism. I, I think that the, that the segue is actually managed rather smoothly. Mm. Um, I wouldn't agree with those criticisms. I think it's a great mm. score. Really good. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I agree. I, I don't I don't really see that. I mean, you know, there's the, there's, there's all, I, I personally think Casino and having seen No Time to Die Now, like I can, re- we can review the Craig era as one package. I still think Casino Royale is the best film of, of all of them personally. Yeah. And I think there's always been a lot of... I mean, I remember a good friend of mine always saying that he felt like the final act with the Venice house crumbling was a step too far. And I've, I've never thought that. But I think there are schools of thought out there that think that Casino structurally is a bit all over the place. Now, I don't think that's true. I think I think it is in a way. I mean, it would make a good miniseries in a way because you have you have it start off in Madagascar and you have all the African stuff and then it goes to Montenegro and then it finally goes to Venice. You could almost have like a six-part miniseries and really stretch it out, that, that story, and the way they did it anyway, which was very different from the book. You know, they really did add extra elements to that film. And I, th- I think in terms of the music alongside that, I think the music has to, at that in that vein do different things. It has to start with, you know, when he's in Africa with that amazing free-running sequence at the beginning, which is the sequence that really made everyone go, Jesus Christ, this is different than anything we've ever had in Bond before. And it's still, I think, the best action sequence Daniel Craig ever did, that first one in Madagascar where he's free-running. I mean, it's insane. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant even now. And, you know, that I think he had to change from that really pulse-pounding, you know, drumbeat kind of African-infused stuff into more of the uh, the darkly sort of seductive brooding kind of elements once you get to the card game. And we'd, like you say, with Le Chief, and then when it gets to the romance with Bond and Vesper into that sweeping Barry-esque love, love theme, it has to juggle quite a lot. And I think I think the film does that well, and I think, I think the music does that well. And I have to say, as great as that movie is in terms of writing, because the script is fantastic, in terms of direction by Martin Campbell, which is excellent, I do not think that film would be as great as it is without this score. That this score sets that film off completely. It is the it is the packet. It is the cherry on top. That I think I don't think the film would work in the same way without that score to it. I totally agree. It creates a sense of empathy and humanity, which is exactly what you need. You need to believe in Daniel Craig's performance, and Daniel Craig's performance is 
phenomenal on its own terms but you know you're looking at it on the surface the music suggests what's going on beneath the surface it suggests the the proto 007 agent who makes the mistake of letting his guard down and falls in love and then pays the price for it he is he's yeah. betrayed and the music gets that brilliantly and mm. obviously the idea of the idea of 007 earning his stripes i mean the, the fact that he is in in the act of becoming james bond he's in the act of becoming his own legend which is why the film is so fascinating to watch because no bond film had done that before mm. and mm. the way that the score does that brilliantly is it it withholds the classic bond theme until the very very end and it instead yeah. sub, it substitutes it with the you know my name chris cornell theme from the song which is fantastic that's one of the best mm. bond opening songs ever i love that yeah. song um it's such a shame that we lost chris cornell um not too mm. long ago because he did a terrific job with it but it what, yeah. what it proves that this this is going to be a recurring theme probably as we record this is when the composer in this case david arnold is involved with the creation of the bond song the title song there will be consistency between the song melody and the underscore melody and everything will mm. tie together which is what casino mm. does brilliantly because whenever you know my name is heard in the underscore for example during the blunt instrument sequence when he arrives in the bahamas it's nothing more than Bond, I think, driving like a Ford. It's a very boring car that he's driving, but <laughs> it works. It kind of, it, it, this, is, this is a young, inexperienced, but very talented agent going around, making mistakes, seeking out leads. He's on the trail of something. We don't, at the initially, we don't know where it's going to lead him, but the music tells you that he's got a sense of swagger and confidence about himself and that he's on the trail of something important. We don't quite know what it is when we first watch the film. And it works so brilliantly and the mm. idea of that song theme becoming the substitute Bond theme is then ultimately replaced by the Bond theme during the final scene when he says the name's Bond, James Bond. I mean, structurally, it works so well in terms of the music. I, I think that, I, 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 you know what, to, be, to go back to a point you mentioned earlier, I do think Casino Royale is episodic as a story in the film. Uh, I don't think it's structured perfectly. Um, no, no Bond film is perfect. All Bond films have got awkward, mm. angular, like lumbering <laughs> edges. Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah I, I do think there there is a peculiar pattern to Casino Royale where you're you're basically front loaded with the two biggest biggest action sequences in the first hour. Then everything stops and it goes into this stop start poker game interspersed with which. Uh, tense moments then it goes back to the card game there's another tense moment it goes back to the card game it's not it's not structurally perfect but such is the strength of daniel craig's performance and the accompanying score by david arnold in, in amidst everything else that's brilliant about it it pulls you through it yeah i think you're right i think it, it the, the the music it's not that the music has to do heavy lifting because the film is great but i think it, it does allow you to to approach those transitions you know in kind of style and story in in a, in a in an even smoother way, yeah. It, it's just it's just a fantastic piece of work. It really is. And I, I like I say, I would love to see David Arnold come back. And I think you know, I think I I always wonder whether had Sam Mendes not directed Skyfall and it would have been more of a random director, you know, of of like like in the ages before, if if you would have had Arnold come back and do that and maybe Spectre. I think you know because Mendes obviously brought Thomas Newman in because it's his regular composer, and. You know, I I wouldn't. I always think, what would what would Arnold have done with Skyfall? You know, but then Skyfall wouldn't have been Skyfall as it was without Sam Mendes. So, 
it, it, <laughs> it's it's a non-question really isn't it, it also maybe? wouldn't have been what it was without thomas newman because thomas newman i know yeah. i know thomas newman's scores for bond are controversial but thomas newman has got one of the most distinctive musical signatures of any composer in hollywood i think he's a genius and I remember at the time thinking when Sam Mendes was, was appointed to Skyfall, I thought he's not going to bring Thomas Newman along with him, is he? I was like, oh, he is. <laughs> and I, I remember being really pleasantly surprised by that. And I was like, wow, we're going to get a, a Thomas Newman Bond action score? I was like, and what I liked about Skyfall was that Thomas Newman's got such a strong musical signature and he was able to fuse that with the stylistics of Bond very, very well in Skyfall, maybe less so in Spectre. Um, because Spectre did recycle wholesale passages from Skyfall to somewhat bizarre effect. I mean, you know, one can argue why Thomas Newman did that. But yeah, I I, I would really like to see David Arnold come back. Maybe if they reboot it with another with another actor, which they're obviously going to do in a few years' mm. time, maybe David Arnold will come back and score that reboot like he did with Casino Royale. That'd be great. It That'd would be, be amazing, great. wouldn't it? <laughs> so. I hope so. Yeah, it, do, it would be. It would be. I think a lot depends on on the director, you know, because I, I, I don't think it'll be Martin Campbell again doing it for a third time with a new Bond. I just get a feeling that's not quite going to happen this time around. So who knows? It's all it's all to play for, but it would be great. And, and you know, he's more than worthy and he's still going and he's still doing great work. So, yeah, love love this one to bit. Let's move slightly away from Bond briefly um, and then and talk about a, uh, a new score. Now, this was one, obviously, we talked about a little bit, I think maybe the last episode or the episode before, and it was we only talked about one track off it because, well, in, I'd, only, I'd only listened to one track. You'd listened to the score, but you hadn't seen the film. This is The Green Knight by David Lowry, which was pulled from cinemas, delayed, and at the last time we talked about it, we didn't know when it was coming uh, to the UK, and finally, it was dropped on Amazon Prime at the end of September, uh, much to the joy of you know film fans on the social media who'd been clamouring for this. Uh, so finally, Sean, you we were both able to listen to the score in context, uh, and I was able to listen to it fully because it went on Spotify. Um, so uh, let's revisit this. Uh, obviously, this is this is the, the Sir Gawain and the um, uh, the quest uh, for the Green Knight uh, quest story, which is a, a, a famous story that David Larry has adapted for cinema, starring Dev Patel. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's a beautiful movie, absolutely gorgeous piece of work, artistic cinema. So what did you think of the score in context with the film, Sean? And what did you think of the film? Yeah, it was a really, really strange experience, this, because I remember I, I interviewed Daniel Hart and I had to say to him, literally, they pulled the movie from the schedule on the day that I interviewed him. And I was, and then oh, he was yeah. he was kind of like, oh, he, he, I mean, he's such a nice person and he's so enthusiastic and he spoke so, so effortlessly and so beautifully about his own score. And he was like, I really do hope you get to see the film because it's an extraordinary piece of work. And he said, I'm not just saying that as the composer, it's a genuinely extraordinary film. And it is. I mean, it's it's mm. not... Mm. It, it's one of those really fascinating films that doesn't owe itself to contemporary trends at all. And I really, really like that. I, I think it almost feels like an, an unearthed film from the 1970s or something like that. It, it's it's very, very, very oblique, very cryptic, very atmospheric. It doesn't explain itself to the audience. But I like that because we're living in an age now where I think we expect we expect things to be explained to us all the time. And that's not a trend I'm entirely happy with and i know i'm this is, might be a little bit of a controversial target here so i'll duck and cover a little bit but if you think for example of the christopher nolan batman films which were tremendous 
they constantly explained themselves to the audience. Like they constantly had characters coming in, saying dialogue, explain who's he, right? Where are you going? What am I doing? Who are you fighting? And it's like, I love the way that the Green Knight just, obviously it's a completely different genre. It's a completely different story, but it doesn't owe itself to those principles. And, you know, just to recap, so Dev Patel plays Sir Gawain um, in a film that's adapted from the, the ancient poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. He is a kind of feckless, callow individual, um, a knight of, of King Arthur, one of the members of the Round Table, but he is not a heroic, virtuous figure at the beginning of the um, film. And at the beginning, um, Arthur, played by Sean Harris, says, uh, sort of call, calls upon him. And Arthur's uh, Arthur's wife, played by Kate Dickey, says, "Well, tell us a story about yourself." And Sir Gawain says, well, "There are, there are. I, I have no stories about myself." And she says, "Well, not yet." And it's it, the film is full of those kind of portents, those brilliantly atmospheric portents. Then you have the arrival of the Green Knight, who is kind of a cross between a human being and a shrubbery, um, who um, walks in, challenges. A, an uns, you know challenges the room to a, a, a contest a game as he calls it Sir Gawain steps forward and decapitates the knight not knowing that what he's actually committed himself to is that, that the favour now has to be repaid a year later and that Sir Gawain will have to go out and, and find the green knight and and for the for the you know the beheading favour to basically be repaid so he doesn't know what he's getting himself into as I said he's a, he's a callow listless drunken individual and what then happens is the film follows Sir Gawain on a quest through this extraordinary arcane, like mist-strewn landscape, brilliantly conjured by David Lowry and the cinematographer Andrew Droz Palermo, who, if he isn't nom- at least nominated for the Cinematography Oscar next year, honestly, there is no, there's going to be no justice in the world, frankly. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. it, it, I'm sure you'll agree with me, it's an extraordinary film to look at, isn't it? It's yeah. just yeah. amazing. I mean, there's yeah. one bit... He wanders through a forest, and it's almost like it's almost like there's distilled gold and amber pouring down through the air. It's got this lovely kind of like ochre, yellow, orange hue. And I'm like, how did they do that? Like, mm. how did they catch that? I mean, presumably there is some kind of post production grading on it, but it's it's really quite amazing. And there are all manner of like surreal set pieces that basically put this central character to the test. And the music is very much of a piece with the movie the movie is not an easy journey it's very it's very challenging um there are longures there are there are kind of elliptical baffling confounding passages i mean the whole film is is kind of like that but that's what i liked about it and the music similarly as one would expect is not drawing so much on thematic notes there are there are recurring motifs in in the score if you listen to the score in isolation but be prepared it is a dark experience there are recurring ideas in there. It's more about tone. It's about using tone and it's using vocals, brilliant use of vocals, brilliant use of like plain song, poetry. Um, Daniel Hart said to me that he went and researched a lot of arcane kind of words that have fallen out of existence and he put those as songs into the score and some of those are heard diegetically within within the context of a given scene others are heard non-diegetically being sort of piped in from seemingly from from outside the world of the film and it's a really really remarkable piece of work it's really broody and experimental and very eerie and i suppose it probably owes more to the tone of of Hart's score for larry's other film a ghost story which mm. 
Mm. I, I think I believe you're 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 a fan of that. I love that film. Yeah, and, and and the music. To be fair, yeah. I mean, the, the films are obviously different in in many ways, but then at the same time, that that whole film is about a you know a ghost wandering around a landscape. Almost looking for something. It's it's and, and you know the Green Knight is is a lot of Dev Patel moving around, yeah. going in, in a, sort of an episodic fashion, for going to different people. So th- there's there's I suppose a connective there. I, I I agree with everything you've said. Really, I I I won't lie. I didn't really love the film in a way. <laughs> it's one of the, it's one of those things where I I thought it was incredible, like in terms of how it looked. Like you said, in, in any just world. David Lauer will be up for an Oscar for this, like without a shadow of a doubt. I hope that happens. I worry it's this film is just too plain weird for, for people to actually, on a main in a mainstream context, really get enough to get that kind of awards love. I hope I'm wrong there, but I I so I, you know in terms of the visuals, I, I, it, there's that sequence with um, Erin Kellerman where he goes to the and she's the woman with the the, the in the house yes. who's, who's dead. I mean, it looks incredible. That I mean, that that's the sequence I always remember from this because it's beautiful. It's haunting. It's like, uh, it's it's stunning. Like, and there's so many examples of that. I I I I think it's just not my cup of tea. I think is the best way to put it in terms of the way it's presented and the story and the the way. It's just not my cup of tea. That's me. <laughs> that's so. It's purely a personal thing on an artistic level. I think it's fantastic, and I understand why anyone would love it. And the score, yeah, it, it, it's it's really good. I mean, it's such a contrast from when we last talked about Daniel Hart uh, for the last letter from your lover, which was a really sort of eh, it was all right kind of romantic score. And then he comes and does this kind of thing, which is just really arresting and really strange and really odd and jagged and, like you say, experimental and and dark and and yet weirdly interesting to listen to on its own terms you know which is what we always talk about don't we and, and this podcast about you know in the last one where i found um what was the what was the michael levy is it zola that film oh, zola yes zola, yeah. yeah that was it that one i just couldn't listen to independently because it, it just did not work on its own terms whereas i kind of think this did in a way it's not throw it on and enjoy it sit back on a sunday afternoon music but i i quite liked it separately and i thought it was you really felt the mood of the piece you know and and the, there was there was a certain beauty to it you know, even as as strange as it was, uh, which which I think sums the movie up completely well. Actually, there is a beauty to it, as strange as it is, a real beauty to it. Yeah, so, it's like it's it's a dark beauty, isn't it? It's a very dark, yeah. almost borderline perverse beauty to it. There there is one sequence in which there are two characters played by Alicia Vikander in the film, one of whom appears sort of tangentially at the beginning and then more significantly during an extraordinary montage sequence at the end. I'll get back to that. But there there is another there is another character played by Alicia Vikander who basically acts almost as like a temptress with her husband played by Joel Edgerton. And this is one of the many kind of episodic challenges that Sir Gawain is being put through on his quest to become a chivalrous knight. And mm. she basically almost like sexually tempts him in a way. And mm. at mm. that point, he, 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 fa- he fails. You know, he, he, fa- he fails the test of, of being virtuous and being chivalrous. And it's kind of, it's a very, it's a very, very unset. That's a very unsettling sequence that. And I think Dev Patel is key to this film's impact. He's really good at 
he gives it the human spark because otherwise you'd be drifting through this completely alienating landscape with no emotional center in it but dev patel provides that sensor because he's really good at playing people in discovery of themselves if you think of something like slumdog millier or lion maybe more specifically he's a really good actor at playing characters like that but the the the, it, the film is a testament to the power of spotting in music because as i mentioned that that montage sequence and i don't want to go too far for those who may be thinking of seeing it there is basically a montage sequence that plays out at the end when um sir gawain gets eventually gets to the green knight as, as really well really well embodied by Ra- Ra- rafe innocent incidentally and what you essentially get is one of those classic you know, what does that mean, sequences? There are any number of interpretations that you can bring to it. I mean, fundamentally, without wanting to go into too granular levels of detail, I think what it is is what, if you could see your own future and you could see how the nature of your own character was going to impact on your future, would that change you? And the music in that sequence is amazing. I mean, it's, it, there's no dialogue. There is there is almost literally no dialogue during the last probably like 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. The music carries it along with the, the brilliant sound design as well. And it's phenomenal. It, it's, again, it, it feel the music is completely in tune with the tactility of the film. When I was watching the film, I did genuinely feel like I'd been swept into Arthurian England and that's a real it's a real testament to the you know the ballast that they've given the production design the costumes the cinematography the music the sound and I think yeah you're right that the, the, the music is challenging to listen to but there is a there is a subtle emotional impetus to it underneath in line with Dev Patel's performance um, mm. and that ending I was just like wow I mean you come out of it completely yeah. punch drunk don't you thinking what, okay what on earth thinking I have to go and see that again <laughs> because it's, yeah. it's so confounding but yet brilliant at the same time although as you said you, you weren't so much a fan of the of the film oh, but... I, 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 I would be curious to see it again I think in a way I, I, it, yeah I, I, I just don't know I, I just feel like that first time around I appreciated it on many way on many levels, but it and, and like you say, that ending is great, and it is really just leaves you wondering and thinking and, and things like that, um, which is what films should do, you know, completely. So no, I I, I don't want to go out there and say I, I thought this was bad in any way. I really didn't in any context at all. So maybe I just need to um, go into it with uh, with a different angle, maybe. But we'll see, we'll see. I, I think I think it's it's a success and. The score equally is great, so and worth listening to on its own terms. So, um, so yeah, let's uh, let's go back then to Bond. Let's go to your retro pick, Sean, which uh, is uh, from 1987. This is the Living Daylights by John Barry, the great John Barry, the last John Barry score that he ever wrote for Bond. So it's quite a uh, an, an important one, really. This is the uh, first. Of the only two Dim- Timothy Dalton films, um, so I, 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 we've sort of you know gone two two. In fact, I didn't realise this. They're both the, the choices are both first Bond films for people actually, and uh, different Bond eras. So uh, you know, g- given that John Barry is the the Bond guy, he is the master of Bond, and he scored films for twenty five years. Why have you picked The Living Daylights then? I, I just think because it, it's brilliant. It's it's one of the most instrumentally and melodically diverse 
uh, Bond scores that Barry ever did. And blimey, that's saying something. Because yeah, yeah. Barry was always able to reinvent himself with every new Bond movie. I believe even Jerry Goldsmith, bingo. There he is. What's, uh, the, what's the time? So I've got uh, 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame. I was hoping to get it in 40 seconds, but no, I'll take it in 40 minutes. <laughs> next time. Next yeah, next time. time. Um, I think even Jerry Goldsmith cited admiration at how John Barry was able to reinvent himself pretty much every single time with every new Bond movie that he did. But The Living Daylights just hits an absolute peak of brilliance. I mean, one to put it in context, obviously, Barry had been with the franchise since the very beginning. He, depending on what one believes, he either um, co-composed the original Bond theme with Monty Norman or he arranged Monty Norman's original theme. This obviously resulted in a... 2006 lawsuit that Barry actually lost um so this this was always mm. very contentious what cannot be argued is that whoever came up whoever deserves credit for the Bond theme John Barry was the sound of Bond because he did um the majority of the underscores you know f- from Russia with Love right the way through up until Diamonds Are Forever then George Martin took over with the Live and Let Die then Barry came back for The Man with the Golden Gun off again for The Spy Who Loved Me that was Marvin Hamlish back again for Moonraker off again for For Your Eyes Only um, but yeah. it's, it was an on-off thing but Barry was the sound of that series regardless of who takes credit for the Bond theme I mean the arrangements of the brass section which owes itself to Barry's time with I think it was with the John Barry seven not the the, the jazz the jazz the jazz group that he had in the 1950s I mean John Barry was basically almost like a Bond figure in the 1950s he was he, you know he, he drove an e-type jag he had lots of relationships with very you know, very very sort of noted celebrities of the time you know he, he was he was a young handsome guy he was in, he was in a jazz group i mean he was the perfect guy to score bond mm. he was just mm. and i think he understood the character he got it you, you can hear it particularly in the early films i think he confessed he got a bit bored i think as, as they went on <laughs> um but you wouldn't be able to tell that from the living daylights because he is so clearly revitalized by the presence of mm. timothy dalton as that gritty, hard-edged human Bond. I think everything that Daniel Craig does owes itself to Timothy Dalton because Tim Dalton brought that steely, ruthless edge, but also the sense that Bond is a human being. He makes mistakes. Um, He's consumed with rage a lot of the time. As I said about Daniel Craig, he's as damaged as his quarry. And that obviously Mm. came out more in Licence to Kill, which was scored by Michael Kamen. But in... The Living Daylights, we'd obviously moved on from Roger Moore, um, who obviously powered out in, in A View to a Kill. I think he was about, what, 57, was he at that point? Yeah, like, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I mean, Too old, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've always had a soft spot for A View to a Kill. I like A View to a Kill as a film. Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah, and the score by John Barry is tremendous. You know, that's another... I could have picked that one, actually. But I think realising that Tim Dalton was a complete reinvention of the character, John Barry upgrades the harmonic and instrumental techniques i mean for once for the first and only time in a john barry score what you get is an electronic drum kit underpinning Mm. the action sequences which gives more of a kind of tactile hard sort of thumping edge to the action sequences but crucially as with all great film composers the electronic element is subservient to the orchestra it is about the strings and the brass they are Mm. leading it The, the drum kit is very much a supporting element and I think it's actually amazing that hasn't actually dated all that much. I think no. it works, doesn't it? As, as, as yeah. a tonal device, it works. Yeah, it's really odd, actually, how that's, that's the case. Because, you know, you've got 
you've got Aha doing the Living Daylights theme, which is like Duran Duran's A View to a Kill theme. It's incredibly eighties. Like you know, it's oh, I love, I love it though. I, I, I love oh, both yeah. of them. Yeah, same. It's... They're both brilliant. Yeah, they're really good. But it's interesting how Barry chooses at points to actually go with the Chrissy Hind B song, which is Where Has Everybody Gone, which he plays on the credits. And he, and he puts that in, he puts the trumpet in, doesn't he? It's, I think it's the sequence where M's house is being attacked. Yes. And it's that... It's, it's that, listened to by Net by Netcross, the baddie on yeah. his headphones. So it's heard diegetically within the scene. Yeah. So that, 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 I don't think that had been done with a Bond song before, actually. That might have been a first, if I'm, I'm that, sure someone could point that out. But Yeah, <laughs> and, and that, that had, yeah, and then that's subsequently been done since. I mean, it's done in the most recent film, in fact, isn't yeah. it? But it's like... Yeah, so there's some really interesting things that he chooses to do. But I, I love how you've picked this one, definitely, because I, th- I think it is it is almost like a John Barry Bond score that that gets a little bit forgotten because everyone goes to the big hits, you know, it goes to the, the early 60s stuff or On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which, which probably is his best one, you know, and, and all of these guys. But then you've got he, he's, he, but all of them in the different contexts. I mean, I think Moonraker is incredible. You know, what he does on Moonraker is beautiful. But it's, but it's great that, you know, The Living Daylights is there because it has some amazing pieces. I mean, the romantic love score with Bond and Cara is gorgeous. It's one of his most beautiful. You know, some of the action, big brass sort of action things like Air Bond, you know, over Afghanistan in the plane. It's brilliant stuff. It's absolutely amazing. It's stuff I'd love to see done live, actually. And I know the si- si- um, City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra have done a lot of that, and they've, and they, they've done that live and things like that. But it's it's just great, you know. It's 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 a really really great score, and like you say, it has all these different elements to it, these complexities that should have dated, but they haven't. And and they they do, they they, they provide an entryway for Dalton's Bond in a in an appropriate way because The Living Daylights itself as a film is very much a hybrid of this possible new Dalton edgy future and the very you know suave sophisticated. Bond that we'd seen in the more years it's a bit of a hybrid film you know it's telling that originally it was supposed to be Pierce Brosnan for the living daylights but he was tied into Remington Steel so he didn't get to do it till Goldeneye like 10 years later nearly so they they, they in a way it feels like they'd written that for Brosnan which which makes sense you know when you look at the film in many ways and it's not really only License to Kill then that really goes right let's do it let's do a proper Timothy Dalton Bond film and make it hard and nasty and you know um so do you know what I mean? And so Barry, Barry scoring it makes sense to to sort of uh, bring all those elements together. Yeah, it's got that outlandish, outsized feel to it, which is what you need, and yet it's got just enough grit under the fingernails to make it work. I mean, I'll say outright, this is one of the most thematically rich Bond scores that Barry ever did because there are three songs composed for it. You've got the main, all, all of which are deployed within the underscore, so bri- brilliantly interpolated by John Barry. You've got the AHA title track, which acts as one theme in the underscore you've got the pretenders where is everybody gone which you've just mentioned which is the net cross that's the baddies theme essentially the main main antagonist theme and then you've got the um if there was a woman the love theme for bond and cara which is as a song it plays over the end credits and it's fairly drippy and it's fairly forgettable but if there was a man yeah yeah that's it (laughs) and it's that that's the kind of thing that people when they walk out the cinema there's a song playing is there and they probably walk out and just forget about it but the melody is lovely the melody on its own it is no one was better than nobody was better than john barry at adapting Nobody did it better. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, nobody, nobody did do it better. I mean, so, <laughs> well, no. yeah. so many composers have tried to adapt the Bond mantle. 
people. David Arnold is the one that's obviously come closest, but nobody did it better than John Barry. And his ability to adapt song melodies into the underscore was extraordinary. He was really good at that. And it was fortunate that I think on every John Barry Bond score, he got to write the songs. And there was real consistency, real consistency between what you hear during the opening credits and what you subsequently hear in the underscore throughout the rest of the movie. And The Living Daylights is an emblem of how brilliantly that can be pulled off. All those three themes, plus the Bond theme, which stands on its own, plus a whole host of other, a host of other motifs as well. So, I mean, you're probably looking at at least, ha- at least half a dozen ideas circulating in The Living Daylights, which is a pretty phenomenal amount of... The thematic melodic material for a film like this it's it's really really engaging to listen to and it shows real self-awareness of the, of the franchise while also imbuing it particularly in the romantic sections with more sincerity than what we'd necessarily got during the roger moore years where i think everything was more tongue-in-cheek i mean i'm glad you cited just incidentally i'm glad you cited moonraker because that is beautiful moonraker is yeah. gorgeous and it's it's funny watching Moonraker because it's one of the stupidest Bond films ever, it, and yet it, it holds a special place in my heart because it was I the love first, it. yeah it, it 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 was the first one I owned on VHS. Um, okay, yeah. I I had a horrible. I went. I was only about eight or nine at the time. I had a horrible dent. I had to get a, like a, something cut underneath my tongue at the dentist. It was horrible. And it was it was really gory. And my mum said, "Well, if you get through it bravely, I'll buy you a Bond theme, a Bond film as a reward." <laughs> I and like it. I think she went down to Woolworths, and she went. Uh, she said they didn't have the one you asked for, which I think was for your eyes only. But here's Moonraker, which I hadn't seen. I was like, "Oh, great!" Um, yeah. And it's probably no surprise that John Barry's score made such an impression on me, and that it stuck yeah. with me because I think watching Moonraker, I get the impression that what John Barry said to himself was i'll be damned if my music is going to stoop to the level of stupidity that's in the film (laughs) it's it's going to be really elegant really supple really romantic it's going to float above the movie with this air of class and you know what it works it works so brilliantly it imbues the film with so much more by playing against the expectations of the movie the score makes the movie better um Mm. i'm not sure anyone else other than barry would have got away with that no Curious no. thing, Can isn't you it? imagine a, a, a Marvin Hamlish Moonraker score? <laughs> There'd been a lot of <laughs> disco. The... I mean, the, the, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be amazing. The, 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 there, there is actually the disco version of the Moonraker title song, isn't there? Over the end credits of yeah, Moonraker. That's yeah, probably what Marvin yeah. Hamlish would have sounded like, actually, all the way. Can you imagine that? Oh my God. I kind <laughs> of want that to exist, like, in a way. I think a, that would be amazing. It's like, dum, dum, where are you? Yeah, I just want a whole score of that. Yeah. Amazing, but um, but yeah, it, you you know you can't beat a bit of Barry, and it won't be the first um, time we talk. The last time we talk about him in this, because I think there's going to be a little bit of conversation about that when we get to No Time to Die, which is coming soon, guys. Uh, you know, hold on, we're nearly there. But John, John do, Barry will return. John Barry will return. <laughs> yeah. Before we get there, uh, let's uh, move into a different franchise and uh, talk about Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is the latest Marvel. Studios movie uh, that came out at the start of September, scored by Joel P. West, and uh, this is the, the the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, uh, origin story for the character of Shang Chi, uh, who uh, is just a normal normal bloke in San Francisco who gets caught into a big family mystery about these mysterious Ten Rings and Asian crime syndicates and plans to unleash God knows what 
evil beasts onto a secret <laughs> hidden village and all this stuff. It's a bit mad. But it's a cracking film, actually. I, I, I thought it was really great fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it even more than I thought I would. And I have to say, the score really took me by surprise, Sean. I actually thought this was a real real belter. I, 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 I thought it was one of those Marvel scores... Uh, and and I, th- I think they've got better at this over the years because the uh, accusation used to be levelled that you know all Marvel scores sound the same, which was never quite true anyway. But I think they've definitely improved over time. I, I would say this is one of the better recent ones. I, I had real fun with this. Yeah, I, I really like the score as well. I also really enjoyed the film. And it's always the case, isn't it? If, if you appreciate the film, you kind of pay more attention to the scoring context, I think. That, that, yeah. that's, that's very often the case. Yeah, I, I really like what Joel P. West did with this. I have to say, I'm largely unfamiliar with his work. I know he's yeah, worked with... Same. Yeah, he's worked with the director, Destin Daniel Cretton, several times before on things like Short Term 12, which was the, you know, the indie film that put Brie Larson on the map, really. That's a great film. I don't remember right, anything okay. musically about that film at all. Um... And when I heard that Joel P. West was being appointed to Shang-Chi, I was like, oh, okay, that's a very interesting choice. They haven't gone for the big, like, you know, as I described Hans Zimmer at the beginning, like rock star name. I mean, because this is Marvel. They could frankly go with anyone they wanted. I imagine this was Cretton staying loyal to one of his um, longest serving collaborators and frankly, good for him. Like, good for him for importing the composer of Short Term 12 into the Marvel Cinematic Universe canvas. So I imagine that he stumped for him. He st- that he stumped for Joel P. West, and it and it and it works. It's it's a I, I think it's a really great score. I mean, I'm a sucker for Hollywood composers interpreting um, a, a sort of Far Eastern ambience and aesthetic. I mean, what one should say outright: this is a Hollywood composer assimilating the idiosyncrasies and aesthetics of you know a, a, a different culture. One must say that outright. It's not like this score has been composed by someone from within that culture but i don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that necessarily because it's it's a really beautiful score i mean i think that's probably the thing that seduced me about the film which is this is the first marvel cinematic universe movie that draws on asian mysticism and legends and iconography and i thought that was really really intoxicating and really beautiful i mean there's the sequence when they i think we can talk about this now can't we because the film's been out for for a while yeah. um where shang chi and his allies basically find the hidden village in the forest and he's schooled by Michelle Yeoh's character. It's not just in terms of like fighting, but in terms of you need like the mental discipline. You need to be mentally prepared. And you get this very lovely crouching tiger, hidden dragon-esque set piece between the two of them. And the music has got the, the use of the bamboo flute, the, the erhu, which is the stringed mm. instrument. And it's really lovely. And those, those instrumentals are carried, the instrumental principles are all the way through the score. It gives it a real sense of delicacy. Even, even in the more emotional moments like we have Wen Wu the Mandarin brilliantly played by Tony Lung who just lights up the screen every time he he turns up you get there's a real gravitas to the music and you know in spite of the fact that it's a Hollywood composer you know writing for this character you get authenticity through the the you know the, the speciality instruments that have been used the chord progressions you know the counter rhythm the harmony um and there is a theme you know there is a theme for Shang-Chi whether it's that memorable or not there is a theme for him that builds throughout the score. It's a, it's not a Marvel score that just kind of ambles along. You know, there are clear building blocks to it, and there is a narrative that that's that's conveyed all the way through it, which is you know something that some Marvel scores have struggled with. I do agree with you. They've 
you know, generally with the appointment of Alan Silvestri with Captain America, the first Avenger and subsequently the Avengers movies, they got better after that point. I think generally they realised that, you know, there is something about, there's something about importing a composer of Alan Silvestri's calibre into a franchise like this because he brings so much blockbuster history with him. And I think that's inspired the subsequent composers like Michael Giacchino and now Joel P. West to also step up and think, right, okay, this is like Bond. This is an outsized, outlandish, essentially fantastical concept that's got to be imbued with real human relatability and empathy. And I think Joel P. West does it really well in in this. And I think the film, Mm. as a a film on its own terms, it does it really well as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I, th- I think I think you've hit the nail on, on all the heads there. Really, I think <laughs> all the nails and all the heads. <laughs> all, all the nails and all the heads. I think uh, it, it does. It, it, it manages to, I think, provide Shang Chi as a character and the this what what I'm sure will now become a, a trilogy because it's done really well at the box office, justifiably, uh, because it was a real. I, I found it just a real. I, I can't remember, and, and if I'm honest, it's, it's as crazy as this sounds, I, I, even including No Time to Die, which I did really enjoy, which we'll get to soon, I don't think I've had as good a time at the cinema watching Shang-Chi as I've had in a long, long time. There was something about what that film. I just thought, everything is working for me here. Everything, even though I understand that it's it's not a perfect film, it's not a five out of five movie, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there was just something about the experience. I was like, it's just working, like everything, and the, and the music in, in includes that is included, you know. In in that, the, there are so many motifs in there, and so many lovely moments and lovely action beats, and you know, sweeping kind of uh, themes to it. That I was just like, wow, this is this is just great. This is just it remind. I mean, the film itself, I think, in terms of it's not as good, but in terms of that origin story impact really did remind me of black panther and i think that the score isn't as good as that i mean that obviously that won an oscar and it it is a magnificent piece of work it's not that great but it did leave me with the same feeling of this score works really well for this movie and this character and i can see how this would weave into not just the future shang chi sequels which i'm sure we will get now but also when shang chi pops up in who knows what avengers five or whatever comes when he starts popping up in other things and you get those films bring in some of the themes from these from these other movies i could well imagine joel p west's work being layered in to even somebody else's score like alan silvestri did at points in like avengers infinity war or endgame and i really hope that happens because i think this score is good enough and i think the 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 the, the main sort of theme for shang chi that comes out of it with this orca- this Asian orchestration is is great. It's good enough, I think, to warrant that in the future. Yeah, I I, I really hope that they bring back Joel P. West to score the future Shang Chi solo movies, assuming that we get them. I mean, we're in a very interesting place with Marvel now, aren't we? Because we hit a peak with Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame was historic. Mm. It drew a line in this franchise. And from there, and subsequently in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've come into a new era of Marvel where they've basically had to reset the chess pieces. And we're kind of starting again with you know various new characters or some other characters like Thor and Doctor Strange and Spider-Man are going to come back again. But one imagines, right, have they learned the lessons that it took them quite a while to learn about musical consistency? Is that now going to be taken forward into phase the rest of Phase 4 mm. and rest of Phase 5? One would hope so. 
Like one one would hope that. I, mean, I think I, I think I read somewhere that Danny Elfman, who's scoring Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, was was a big fan of what Michael Giacchino did with the first Doctor Strange movie. So hopefully there'll be continuity there. I mean, when whenever we get another big ensemble Marvel movie, I mean, goodness knows when that's going to happen. Like you know, like you said, the equivalent of another Avengers movie. I mean, I don't think Alan Silvestri is going to be doing that. I mean, I don't know who would step up and do that, but one what wonders whether they might have further honed the idea of musical continuity more by that point and that there might be more of an effort to draw in multifaceted themes and ideas from these various individual solo films because Marvel has been very patchy about doing that. Um, I mean, even in um, something like Avengers Endgame, which is a terrific score by Alan Silvestri, one does sense there is almost like a reluctance to draw too heavily on the other themes established by other composers i don't think that's alan silvestri's choice i think basically what they're thinking is this is an avengers movie there needs to be kind of clarity of expression in terms of what theme is the overarching emotional signifier of it so let's lean heavily on the main avengers theme as opposed to distracting people with lots of florid references to all the other themes from the other marvel films i mean if that is the decision i do understand that but yeah, it mm. re- it remains to be seen how Marvel is going to develop musically. I think. I mean, I think they I think they've learned their lessons, or they are learning their lessons about that now. I mean, the fact that in, an indie composer like Joel P. West, who'd never done a film like like Shang Chi before, the fact that he's been allowed to come in and do such a brilliant job as this, it gives me hope that they are becoming more open minded about a importing these kind of composers and b hopefully favouring their work in a multitude of different ways as, as, as the franchise goes forward. But we'll, I mean, we'll wait and see mm. on that. I mean, we've got Eternals yeah. by Ramin Javadi. We've got mm. Spider-Man No Way Home by Michael Giacchino. We've got mm. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness by Danny Elfman. I think Thor Love and Thunder. I don't think they've announced who the composer for that is yet, have they? But No, um, it was. It might be Mark Mothersbaugh again, maybe. Which, like which would be great because he, he, he did a brilliant job with Thor Ragnarok, he did. I thought. <laughs> he did. Let's hope, let's hope so. And there's also Christoph Beck for Hawkeye which is coming soon as well um, so it'd be interesting to see what he does with that so you know Marvel is just ubiquitous we're, we're also we've also got uh, What If that, that we'll talk about by Laura Cartman which is coming to an end soon so we'll talk about that soon on this podcast so it's just it, Marvel's just everywhere now constant there'll be music from Marvel pretty much every month <laughs> I think we're talking about it but that's fine because it's diverse enough usually to be able to be a different thing each time now particularly and they've, I think they've really under, started to understand in the last few years the importance of the music in terms of selling these products and keeping them fresh and keeping them different, which is going to be increasingly difficult given that it is literally constant now. Like there is not a month that goes by where you're not going to have something Marvel MCU related, which is a big risk really generally because for years people have talked about Marvel burnout, Marvel oversaturation, but you know, they ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, this, this is that, that was when you had two or three a year. Like now it's like, how many episodes a year? Maybe eighty episodes of something. Yeah. Plus about four movies. Like if they re- if they were oversaturated, then people. So it will be interesting to see what happens, really. But as long as they keep making movies like this and delivering scores like this uh, for TV as well, then sign me up. I'm there. You know, I I I'll have as much as they want to throw at me. To be fair. So we'll see. Time will tell. Speaking of time. Let's let's go back to Bond because we've got no time to die, Sean, to talk about. We've made people wait long enough. If you got this far without switching off, well done. Um, so we will. <laughs> let's talk about it. 
No Time to Die, scored by Hans Zimmer, with, crucially, help by Steve Mazzaro. And that's something that I, I've seen on uh, social media, people complaining about that he's not necessarily getting the recognition for this. But if, if you if you listen to the podcast again, the No Time to Die podcast, which I mentioned earlier, he does mention Steve Mazzaro, Hans Zimmer on there, about how he asked, he wanted to bring him in to, you know, and, and he gets the credit, I think it's uh, produced by Steve Mazzaro, something like that. Um, but the the score is by Hans Zimmer on the credit, so it's interesting. I think it's it's not. I don't know if it's quite a collaboration, but I think Steve Mazzara is quite important to how this came about and how he wanted to do it. So yeah, I, I, it's well, let's do it. Everyone knows the story. James Bond sequel to Skyfall, Spectre, Casino Royale, all that. You know, uh, everyone knows the story by now. Let's not go through that. What did you think of the film and the score, Sean? Let's let's hear it. Um, let's start with the film. I broadly enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's a satisfying end to Daniel Craig's tenure as Bond. I mean, if the film works at all, it's entirely because of him. I mean, he he is brilliant. Um, mm. He reauthored the character with Casino Royale. He imbued it with grace notes of vulnerability, rage, anger, empathy, humanity. And I think all of that comes out here. Um, occasionally, that vies with the silliness and the extravagance of the storyline. But hey, it's a Bond movie. As, as I said about Casino, <laughs> not even Casino Royale is perfect. Skyfall isn't perfect. All yeah. Bond movies have got great big flaws mm. to them. Even on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which I would consider probably the best oh, God, Bond yeah. film. Yeah, it's, there, there, are, there are whiplash tonal changes in On Her Majesty's Secret yeah. Service. So hang on a minute, like, what? Like, what, what the hell? Like, you know, at one point... Yeah, why, why, is he, why is he now dressed like a, a 19th century man doing a weird accent? <laughs> <laughs> with a load of northern women going oh hello chuck what's going on here yeah, yeah and like, why, why yeah, is he exactly. talking with that obviously overdubbed accent and it's kind of and it's, it's really weird and why is he skiing yeah. and why has someone just fallen into a snowblower and got mangled up and caused the line yeah. he had lots of guts it's like hang on where did that come from because that's actually quite nasty and quite sadistic yeah, um, yeah. but so all bomb yeah. movies have got those problems so i don't think it's quite fair to latch on to no time to die and complain about it on those terms that's kind of baked into the bond formula that's what you get what casino royale and skyfall did so brilliantly was they made it seem they made it seem effortless and what i mean by that is you take the dalton era grittiness and combine it with the outlandishness that's essential for the bond formula those two films made it look effortless obviously it's not effortless it's an absolute ball ache to make one of these films it's really hard mm. even sam mm. mendes came out at the end of 2019 i think and said look making a bond film is like being the england football manager you're not going to please everyone you're, you're fighting a losing battle every single time even sam mendes came out was very very stinging about the production process on both Skyfall and Spectre and he made Skyfall which is one of the best Bond movies ever so mm. you know it, I think that strain is more evident in No Time to Die than it is in either Skyfall or Casino Royale which were in spite of their flaws were, were smoother uh, smoother viewing experiences but I did enjoy No Time to Die largely because of Daniel Craig's performance I thought there were intelligent gestures in it I like the way that the villain for once, the villain, who I thought was really well played by Rami Malek, I know he's had quite a lot of criticism for being a bit bland. I thought he was actually genuinely disconcerting and creepy. Um, he's got connections not just to Bond, but mainly to the main uh, woman character, Madeline, played by Leia Sadu, and it's his connection to her that exposes the frailties in Bond. I thought that was good. I liked the way they did that. I thought that was, um, you know, starting from that... You know, that pre-title sequence, it's basically like a horror film. It's like Halloween, mm. um, a masked killer approaching from afar. And you know there are two people in the house and they're they're vulnerable. That was actually quite scary, I thought. And I, I like the way mm. they shook the formula up like that. 
I mean, <laughs> it's quite obvious that they've obviously looked at the template of Skyfall in particular and thought, right, if Skyfall had one reveal of one Aston Martin, let's have two Aston Martins in this one. Um, yeah. Why? There's no reason. There's no reason for him to bring out the V8 Vantage in No Time to Die. But what the hell? Let's just have him driving it because it's the first time we've seen it <laughs> since The Living Daylights. So there's a lot of that kind of attitude in it. Let's just escalate for the sake of escalating things. But again, it's a Bond film. <laughs> I thought it's it's a strange mixture of, of seriousness and silliness, kind of sobriety and earnestness. And it's kind of all over the place. But again, Daniel Craig makes you feel it. I thought there were undercooked ideas. The Shana Lynch's character, Numi, for all the much vaunted talk about, you know, levelling out the MI6 playing field, her character goes nowhere and has no development whatsoever, which I thought was really disappointing because they set her up as being an interesting character and she ultimately has really very little to do with the plot. She certainly doesn't have very much impact on it. One could say the same with Anna Diarmas, who I thought actually is Paloma, who I thought was brilliant in her one secret. She's really funny. And really lively, but she's only in one ten-minute sequence. Then she's not in the rest, not in the film again after that. So it's a complete mess, but it's an enjoyable mess. And I think Daniel Craig cuts through the noise, and he really he's the only Bond actor who's got to basically bow out of this with any sense of dignity. Because you think of all the other Bond actors have either crashed out, being you know they were either too old, Roger Moore, they were too embittered, Sean Connery. Um, they were stupid enough to do one movie and think a career waited for them elsewhere. George Lazenby, that didn't work, did it? Um, (laughs) You know, Pierce Brosnan was dropped over the phone by Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. Timothy Dalton was caught in the political wranglings between Eon and MGM, which meant he left the role prematurely. I mean, Daniel Craig is the only one who's got to see it through to the end, and that's kind of historic. That's really significant in a way, the more I think about that. But I've waffled enough. That's what I think about the film. I mean... I'll because I'll, I've talked a lot. I'll give it a little break before I get to the score because <laughs> I want to <laughs> hear what you think about the film now. Well, so. well, I, I think you make some really, really good points there. I think I, I, the one thing that I was surprised about, and you know, I'll preface this by saying I have not been this excited to watch a movie in I don't know how long. Like genuinely, probably since Avengers Endgame, actually, I would say, which I was well up for and I loved. Well, I really liked. Let's put it that way. And I was, I was honestly surprised about how, how I didn't feel what I thought I would feel when the ending happened. And because some people, even when this comes out, which will be about a week later, and there'll be American listeners who would maybe haven't seen this yet, I'm not going to say what happens at the end. But I was surprised how little I felt anything compared to how I felt at the end of Skyfall. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, the I, end I of totally Casino agree Royale. with you there. Yeah. I was really surprised. And given how it ends, I should have been on the floor in bits. <laughs> and I wasn't. Um, and, and I don't know why, to be honest. I think it's probably because, in many ways, the way this film ends was the only way this could have ended. And, 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 and especially given how it came back after Spectre and they decided that the way Spectre ended wasn't right for Daniel Craig and I think that that was absolutely the right choice and I think No Time to Die was absolutely a film that should have been made and for the most part it's a ride like it has some great sequences I don't think it's got anything quite as good as the African stuff Casino Royale the free run-in or even the Siege of Skyfall Manor at the end of Skyfall which is amazing I don't think I don't think anything in this is as good as either of those in those films but it does have some great set pieces. I love all the stuff with the um, 
the car, the DB5 at the beginning. I just thought that was fantastic, fun, and, and really well staged. And, and you know, I, I did appreciate having both Aston Martins because the, the second one is from the Living Daylights. Funnily enough, that's the same Aston Martin that Timothy Dalton drives in that film. So it was great to see that back, actually. But yeah, it, and, and the, you know, the story, the story is it, it, it has it looks great. This film, I mean, it looks be- it looks fantastic. I mean, it, it shot really, really nicely in many many places. I think it's a better looking film than Spectre, and I, I, th- I think I like Spectre a lot. Actually, I thought that I th- I've always thought that's a bit underrated, and I enjoy it for what it is. Um, but I, th- I think No Time to Die is a bit more cohesive than that film generally. And I, you know, I, I, th- I think I had a great cast. I think it really did. I, I was let down by the villains, both the villains, to be honest. Really, I was, I was much as I agree with you about Malik's performance being creepy, and I think on rewatches that might actually improve for me. I don't necessarily think the character itself is 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 badly designed. I just don't think it was enough was there to really get a grip on that character and what his plan was. And I, and there were quite a few plot holes in this film. Really, there were there were there were things I didn't quite get on the first watch that I should have that should have been able to able to read some of the intricacies about quite what the what the plot was, quite what the mystery about Madeline was, Leah Sadu's character, all these little things. So I th- it'll be interesting to see what, whether it depreciates on a on a on a second viewing. I, will this what I what in my head I term the Star Trek Into Darkness effect? Does it get worse every time you watch it? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, I I don't know. I mean, it it will it will remain to be seen. I really enjoyed it though. I had a great time. I do think it's slightly better than Spectre, but it is not anywhere near as good as Casino Royale or Skyfall for me. No, personally. no, it That's isn't. That's the general feeling i have yeah and I, I totally agree with you that for me despite the way it ends which is you know a, 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 that's that ending sequence has got real magnitude it's really significant yeah. again we don't want to give away yeah. what happens but i i totally agree with you that there is nothing as devastating as what happens with m and silver at the end of skyfall no. which is you, you genuinely do get a genuine sense of loss and i remember watching mm. skyfall thinking blimey how how have i been a bond fan for this long and not really understood his character why has it taken this long for us to get underneath bond's skin properly i mean casino royale did that to an extent but skyfall took it to a whole other level i'm like you know these films have been going since 1962 i only now feel like i'm understanding bond properly now in 2012 that was a really significant moment for me it was really momentous and really interesting I think to go back to your point about my theory as to why the ending maybe didn't knock either you or I out in terms of its emotional sense, it's because the pacing of No Time to Die is not great. The story isn't great. There are too many big moments in advance of that ending. It's too. It's much mm-hmm. of a muchness. And I think the more big moments you have in advance of the ending, the less of an impact the ending's going to have. What Skyfall did so brilliantly was it stripped back the outlandishness of what you expect at the end of a Bond movie. It didn't take place on an exotic island. It took place in a house in the Scottish Highlands where the stakes were intimate, but they were very personal. You felt the danger. And that meant the final sequence with M really cut very, very deep. It it really damaged you because... You're, you're, be, what, you're being intentionally divested of all the usual Bond trappings and it felt like a Bond movie but it divested those trappings as well it works so brilliantly this one does fall back more into the traditional kind of Doctor No okay we've got a villain with a with a you know a, a physical deformity we've got an exotic island we've got you know such and such and blah 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 and I think that's that's might potentially account for why both you and I didn't necessarily 
feel that at the end. I, I yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, it's the end without giving too much away. It's very. It, I, I felt I thought it was a combination of you only live twice and tomorrow never dies. The ending, basically, what they do, which is not a knock, a bad thing, because that you know that that both of those the endings of both of those films are actually really good. But I I think um, the the the, the the point you make about Skyfall is a, a crucial one. And we, I promise, guys, we will get to the music soon. But, like, this is important context, I think, for the music because the music plays into a lot of this stuff. I think that the brilliance about Skyfall and what why what you said is absolutely true is that in that film, you never get any of that understanding of Bond from Bond himself. Mm. Everything comes from everybody else, whether they're trying to unpick his story, whether they're guessing about things, whether they're investigating his history he never at any point sits down and tells you anything that's going on in his head but yet you understand how he feels you understand what happened to him in his past you understand how he feels about m but he never has to say it whereas in no time to die and it's earned in many ways it is earned in many ways and like you said i think daniel craig is great and he does a really good job he this is the first bond movie where he feels much more like a normal bloke basically just trying to defend his family. It's it's a much different kind of bond to the bond we've seen ever before. And it actually lays a really interesting road that they could follow for how this franchise evolves. Um, but I think it, it in this film, he tells you everything. He tells you exactly how he feels. And I think if you do that, you take a little bit of the mystery and the enigma away from the guy in a way that, I don't know if you can ever get back again in a way, and I, and I I I think I think that the ending doesn't work in a way for that reason because he's not a mystery anymore. <laughs> this iteration of Bond isn't a mystery anymore, and I think in a way the way it ends, which to be fair is actually an incredibly momentous thing for James Bond as a franchise. The way this film ends, it does something that has never been done again, never been done before. And it and it's a big thing for for the future of this whole thing, and I think maybe it doesn't work because this film puts too much on the table actually in many ways, and I think I think that's possibly a bit of a genie that's out the bottle now, and it will be interesting to see what happens next as a result. Yeah, I, I do, I do. Yeah, I I, to, I totally agree. That's a really interesting point that you made about Skyfall. There, the fact that they can keep Bond as an enigma, and we learn about him from external sources. I didn't think about it like that before. That's a really, really interesting observation. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, what what No Time to Die is is earnest. It's very earnest, and I think earnestness is something that I've got a problem with. You know, the idea of if you make something more explicable and more melodramatic, that net, that imbues it with more dramatic weight. No, not really. I mean, th- th- that can work, but I think that what happens is that you get, you know, there are too many there are too many peaks in No Time to Die, dramatic peaks for the for the ending to have the impact that it does. What you really needed was you needed before that ending, you need a real moment of subversion, like you've got in Skyfall with the geography of the location, with the setting of that final set piece. You need that subversion to basically catch your breath and take you by surprise so that you're further surprised by what happens after it. And that's what Skyfall did so brilliantly. It's what Casino Royale did very well actually, although I know like you said at the very beginning a lot of people have problems with the you know, the fall of the house in Venice sequence in Casino Royale. Is it is it is it one action sequence too far? But Skyfall didn't have that problem. I, it was interesting that I read somebody who made the point that maybe he should have retired Daniel Craig after Skyfall 
that they'd said everything they needed to say about the character at that point. And now, 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 having now, I look back as much as I do enjoy lots about Spectre and No Time to Die. I, th- I kind of see the point there in a way because I feel like it was it was kind of done. You kind of had told the story in a way about who he was by that point, and I don't know in a way if you needed the next two. So it's it's really interesting now looking back and seeing how it's all wrapped up. That actually, I kind of maybe agree with that in some ways. I mean, Skyfall casts an enormous shadow. It casts a huge mm. shadow of everything. And I will say, I, I much prefer No Time to Die to Spectre. I think No Time to Die is a better film. Spectre, I thought, was yeah, all over the I place. Agree. And, you know, and I think it's quite amusing that No Time to Die completely ignores the events of Quantum of Solace, which I do think yeah. is quite funny. But I will say... In in defence of Quantum of Solace, at least Quantum of Solace has got kind of like a demented singular character to it. At least Quantum of Solace yeah. is trying to do something different. Spectre had no it's, idea what film it wanted to be. Absolutely no well, idea wanted, at all. Well, but, it wanted to be a 70s Bond movie, yeah. basically. And I think I think Quantum's ageing well in yes. many ways. I, th- I think that film is, is going to get a real critical reappreciation over the next decade. And, and I, I did... I didn't like it at first, but I think it's getting better with age. A bit like License to Kill, actually. Yeah. It's the same kind of effect. So, yeah, whereas I think Spectre, I, I enjoy it. I really do enjoy it. I have a great time with Spectre. But, yeah, it is it is just trying to be something that doesn't exist anymore, basically. And No Time to Die does have Spectre-ish elements to it, not just in the storytelling, but it has some of those moments where it's trying to be the old Bond films. There's a, there's a moment right at the very end, after a blisteringly good fight sequence where he makes a quip that you could have absolute a groan worthy quip after you kill someone which you absolutely could have it was funny yeah. but you absolutely could have cut it because it was it was very much a Brosnan moment or a Moore moment and and that I don't, I've never thought Daniel Craig sits well with that stuff he just he just doesn't he doesn't he can't do it as well as they do and I think it, he uh, uh, the Spectre tried to wedge too much of that in you know where he falls off a off a building and he lands on a sofa. It's just that's just not what happens. Craig falls off a building and he basically lands on concrete, gets up and shrugs it off and runs off. You know he doesn't land on a sofa and goes adjust my tie. That's that's not that's not him. You know. <laughs> I'm just thinking of what Roger Moore, what Roger Moore hmm, should have gone to DFS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he, he's, he's they don't quit, but he he almost does. You can you can imagine it's just one line away from being. You know the the double taking pigeon. You know in the moon <laughs> that is <laughs> that is the kind of touchstone of the, like, the low point of cringy <laughs> Bond humour. Really. I'm so glad you cited yeah. that in Moonraker. Yeah, 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 yeah. The double taking pigeon. Yeah, as the gondola goes <laughs> on wheels, goes through some, you know St Mark's Square. That, that, that's yeah. That is the point. That's the high comedy point that you can. Yeah, that they will never go wackier than that. I think. But um, anyway. Let's talk about the score then, because technically that's what people are here for. But I think if you, you've heard us talk about the film in context, and I think I think that the, the score is is important to talk about, knowing how you feel about how we feel about the film. Uh, I don't know about you, Sean. I'll, I'll put this out there, and I did tweet this last night. You probably remember, or you saw. I think this is the best Bond score since Casino Royale. What do you think? Um, I broadly speaking, I like it. I think if you're going to do star ratings, which I don't normally like, I think it's a three and a half to four star score, which is pretty good with it with it within the out bond. five. Yeah, out of five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say if it's out of ten, it's a bit harsh. <laughs> I was, I know, I was a bit worried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out of five. If it was out of ten, it would probably be six and a half to seven. I would say. Um, okay. Okay. Then. So I, 
I, as, as we've already established, I really like what David Arnold did with Casino Royale. I really like what David Arnold did with Quantum of Solace. I think that's a really underrated score. And I know... It is a good score, it, yeah. It gets lost amidst the Blitzkrieg momentum of the film. I mean, the Blitz, Quantum of Solace is just like, as director Mark Forster described it, he wants to make a bullet from a gun kind of movie. And it is that. And mm. I think the score gets lost. And I think that it also suffers because... David Arnold was not involved in the warbling cacophony of a title song that was done by Jack White and Alicia Keys. David <laughs> Arnold had nothing to do with that. Therefore, the, the, there's no there's no melody to there's no melody to that song. Anyway. There was nothing to parlay into the underscore. Anyway, I know you disagree with me on that, but it's, well, I, I don't know. I, I like the song. I don't know if I disagree with the parlay in it. I think that's a fair point. I do like the song, though. But that's just that's just me. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think that Alicia Keys and Jack White harmonised together. At all, I think they should have gone with it, one or other of, of the artists. But despite the fact that Quantum of Solace can't drink from the thematic well, as far as the song is concerned, I think mm. the Quantum of Solace score is really good. I think it's got really propulsive action material, really good espionage material. That sequence at the opera, the night at the opera sequence with yeah. the swirling strings and the harp, is brilliant. That is um, that's probably David Arnold's best piece of suspense music that he's done for any of his Bond scores. It's really, really great. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I really like what Thomas Newman did with Skyfall. I like the fact that he brought his own idiosyncratic flair, but he was also able to honour the spirit of John Barry. Um, and I think it's always the case whenever you bring a composer into Bond, Bond, there is such an established sense of musical convention with Bond that it's a sense of how much is the composer's individual personality going to be effectively be battling with the wider conventions of the franchise. And when you bring in someone like Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer... Much like Bond is a very outsized franchise, Hans Zimmer has got such a dominant kind of overbearing musical personality. He, he is so kind of all-consuming. Like, you listen to a Hans Zimmer score, you'll know instantly that it's a Hans Zimmer score, but immediately, particularly when he works in the action realm. And I know we've, we've had discussions about this before, but generally speaking, I like Hans Zimmer when he's not working within action movies. I think he's better when he's working in dramas and more intimate movies. That's the kind of Hans Zimmer that I like. You think of something like Rain Man, Driving Miss Daisy, uh, Thelma and Louise, you know, Beyond Rangoon, Regarding Henry, whatever. Um, I like Hans Zimmer in that realm. I'm not so keen on the pre-packaged Hans Zimmer, big, bombastic, noisy brand that filmmakers are seemingly hell-bent on reproducing that ad infinitum film to film. That's not necessarily his fault, I don't think it's his fault at all, actually. I think he is a film composer. He's working within an industry. And mm. when certain filmmakers hear a certain kind of prefabricated, prepackaged hands in a sound, they'll go, right, hands, we want that, sc- that score from that film in this film. And that I, th- I mean that as a damning indictment of working practices within the film industry generally. Yeah. I think it's not a swipe against the composer at all because I think there's only so much that Hans Zimmer can do. If he's, t- if he's briefed with doing a score and the filmmaker wants it to sound like something else, there's only so much he can mm. do on that. And I think in the case of No Time to Die, what you get is, I think it's, it, it's, it's an interesting mixture of Hans Zimmer has got a lot of humility in terms of he clearly loves the heritage of Bond. You can hear that in the score. He clearly adores it. You mentioned that at the beginning, that he's he's friends with David Arnold. He clearly reveres the ground that John Barry once walked on. That's very, very evident. Mm. And that's good because you need that sense of reverence. You need that because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for John Barry. Let's be, let's be completely mm. honest about that. Um, so I think that what you get are 
some very very lovely instrumental flourishes you get the squawking muted trumpets during the act during some mainly the early action sequences you got the cuba chase sequence which throws in the, the salsa which is great yeah uh, very i think that might be the best track it's, I, 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 I agree because <laughs> it, yeah, it's yeah. got a real sense of self-aware humorous flair to it hasn't it which is yeah. what you need that's the kind of thing that john barry brought to it in particular that sense of silliness but musically diverse and very sophisticated silliness at the same time that's what you need um there is a really really good incorporation of the billy eilish theme song like with very moody flute and strings it helps hans zimmer was involved with the song so therefore the song Mm. melody is parlayed into the score so there is that consistency there which is really great that's an issue that's blighted a lot of the recent bond um, scores but it's not a problem here there's another theme which I don't know what you would describe it as really maybe like the bond redemption thing, which does rise to very, very kind of, you know, portentous heights during the fine, the, the, the final track of the score is called final ascent. Um, and we won't give away the context, but it's almost like, I mean, it, it is almost like self-consciously overcooked. I mean, you can listen to that and think, okay, that's Hans Zimmer doing what he did in the Batman scores. And this is part of my problem with the score for, mo- for however much I like it. I do think there is a real there's a real duality in it between the, the Hans Zimmer the brand and James Bond the brand in terms of the music and I think there's a battle going on there particularly towards the end where I think that as the score goes on the action music in particular becomes more and more droning for want of a better word and less and less interesting and I think it loses that Bond continuity thread. I think that thread is continued pretty well for three quarters of it. I think during the final sequence when 007 is on the island with Safin, I think I remember what remember thinking this when I heard the context, heard the score in the context of the film. I was like, mm, this is starting to sound a bit too much like Batman now. And mm, that's n- yeah, yeah, I get that. Do, do, do yeah. you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So I, I, th- I thought it was a little bit. There were points I thought, oh, this is very Zimmer, <laughs> and, mm. and that that's exactly what it is. You know, very Batman Inceptiony, Christopher Nolan-y. You know, yeah. at, at points, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And that's a problem for me um, because I think, generally speaking, three quarters of the score I think is great. I think three quarters of the score is really, really good. Again, there are a lot of very, very strong elements in it. I love the instrumental throwbacks to the 1960s. I mentioned the muted trumpets, and the use of the strings, and the use of the flute, and there's a lovely. What do you think about what do you think about the the incorporation of of uh, we have all the time in the world? Because that that that's the big that's the big thing that I think I listened to Matera the 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 track at the beginning of the album, the beginning of the film, which is where it weaves in as as Bond and Madeline are driving that classic theme from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I mean, and, and it's a big thing. I, re- I remember listening to it like a week ago and going, whoa, when I yeah. heard it, I was like, what has he done? And, and, and then later on, you get, um, when Bond and Emma are talking, you get the uh, the uh, the main sort of introductory theme layered in, don't you? The dun, 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 dun. But you get it in a very muted, dark way. What do you, what do you, what do you think about that? Because that's that's really going to stand out to a lot of people. Yeah, a lot. It's in, it's good that lots of people have noticed that. It shows how how brilliant the On Her Majesty's Secret Service score by John Barry is. It shows how how mm. dot, how classic that is that people have identified that within Hans Zimmer's score, even all, all these decades later. I thought that it was a strange mixture of nostalgia and self consciousness. Um, mm. It was a weird thing. I, I thought that. 
you know, much as that is my favourite at Bond score, it's brilliant, and we have all the time the world is among the, the best Bond ballads. I mean, you know, the final song that sort of originally performed by Louis Armstrong. Um, I I don't didn't quite understand its application in the film. Well, I I sort of did on an emotional level the fact that you know okay what it's doing is it's it's portending the same sense of imminent loss and devastation obviously happening on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I thought okay fine. I do I get it on a technical level. I think it again it shows an awareness of heritage, but I think it flags it up a little bit too explicitly for my liking magnificent as the theme is i can't help but wondering would hanseman not have come up with his own theme along that base well there, there as i said there is that other mm. there is that other semi-tragic tragedy romantic bond theme you know the, the other one that, that we hear during during the final movement of the, of the movie i thought well on we have all the time in the world it just about got away with it the the the, the tracking in of but barry's main titles from on a majesty's secret service was very weird I I didn't get why that was there. It, it's it happens during an otherwise incidental co- um, conversation sequence in Bond and M. And on some level, you could say, well, because what Zimmer would probably say is that, well, because that that theme has got such a sense of portent and imminent, like sort of sensuality and danger and espionage, that it kind of made sense tonally to import it into that sequence where M is basically reprising what Judy Dench's M said in Skyfall about, you know, the, the world is the world is more opaque now. We're fighting people mm. in the shadows. And Zimmer would probably say, well, tonally then, that theme works in the back. But I'm like, it, it, it snapped me out of the fabric of the movie because I was like, oh, hang on a minute. I recognise <laughs> I recognise yeah. that music and I'm not, I'm therefore not listening to what the characters are saying. And mm. all great film music will amalgamate brilliantly with the fabric of the sequence while also somehow standing on its own. And I think that it broke that spell for me. What 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 do you think about it? Well, no, I, I get what you mean. It, it was it, it, I, I had that mo- similar moment where I was like, oh, okay, wow, this, wow, because I you know I'd heard the the, the the love theme earlier, and I was expecting that because I'd heard the, the track in advance, but I didn't know this was coming. And I, I, in the scene, I was like, oh, okay, this is this is from OMHSS, but it it was it was a bit odd in that context. I completely agree. I think, could this be partly, and you know, we talked at the start about how it was supposed to have come out this film at the end of 2019. Now, now, now 2019 would have been 50 years since On A Majesty's Secret Service. There was a lot of celebrations at that point about that film being 50 years old. And that film now obviously has been massively reappraised and it's considered many people's favourite Bond movie and all these things. And the score is wonderful. So it, it could be partly a, 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 a celebration of that movie. I don't know. It's also the fact that th- this film is confronting the same idea that Bond hasn't quite done in the same way in in that Bond has the chance of a family and get married and, and you know he falls in love with a woman, which is something we haven't seen, seen done and taken through. I know Casino Royale exists, but that's different in that he never got quite got the chance. Although, to be fair, actually, having said that, there is part of the ending of Casino Royale is that he does have that. He does have Vesper. He does go off with her. You could have... David Arnold, in theory, could have worked this in that film, actually, with Bond and Vesper. And it, it ultimately, Bond, Vesper's still the great love of Bond's life, and even Madeline knows it, and the, you know the film confronts that in many ways. But I think also it's because of the fact you've got Blofeld back, you've got Spectre, you've got all of these things in there that are very iconographic with that movie. And perhaps it was partly because it was 50 years, perhaps it's partly because 
the film has had such a reappraisal and that it's and that that music is so well known it's hard to say i i, I think on a basic story level they thought there was connective tissue between this film and on a majesty's secret service but i wonder if that was maybe maybe they thought there was more there than there actually is in a way and that the nostalgia for it it will send bond fans i mean it sent me wild when i heard it i was like oh wow amazing <laughs> yeah. on that level yes it will bond fans will love every minute of it and great that's wonderful but on a on a creative level yeah i do i agree with you it would have been interesting to see zimmer try and create his own version of a real bond love theme that then could exist and be you know because i mean he may never do another one this might be the only hans zimmer bond movie we ever get now it would it's a shame in a way that he couldn't create something really you know effective and his own that then people will also revere and blend in you know years and years later I think the presence of those Barry tracks basically sums up what's become a real talking point in particularly in blockbuster movies in the last like, sort of 10, 15 years, which is when when does nostalgia become too overpowering? When does when does mm. nostalgia become more than nostalgia? When does it become like a distracting problem within the fabric of a film? Yeah. And I think on one level, I love the fact that, jo- that Hans Zimmer clearly reveres John Barry to the extent that he tracks in not one but two John Barry pieces mm. into this film. I think that's lovely. It shows it shows a degree of humility. The fact that Hans Zimmer is prepared to incorporate somebody else's material that came out several decades ago, I, I really do admire that. But I do think, on a dramatic level, it, it it's it's dis, it's as distracting as it is nostalgic, and it, and it's a funny thing. That's a very interesting point that you made about the fact that it was meant to have come out in two thousand and nineteen. No time to die. That is, and mm. maybe it would have made more sense to hear those pieces in the context of this film in that year i mean, I, I didn't think about it like that yeah I, I do i do wonder if that if that if that might have been the case i think that it's a general sense of this is daniel craig's last bond movie he has to go out in style you know this is going to be a huge great big you know 250 300 million dollar movie we're going to throw everything at the wall let's try and throw as many things at it musically and just make it like like i said earlier that sense of escalation more is more you know, and yeah. that extends to the thematic musical heritage as well, not just the visual heritage. I mean, there are all manner of like visual Easter eggs in 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 the movie as as well. But maybe we'll throw in a few musical Easter eggs to find a boost that sense of heritage as well. I think okay, all of that is admirable in principle. I think when it comes out in the wash, it's a bit of a hodgepodge of like strange ideas, some of which work, some of which don't. I think for me, I mean, those those moments are relatively fleeting. Let's be completely honest. I mean, you know, 99% of this score is Hans Zimmer because, you know, you, mm. you, don't, you mm. don't employ mm. Hans Zimmer yeah. with all of his strength and musical personality and not get a Hans Zimmer score. You know, this, this, this is a Hans Zimmer score like through and through. And I think that for me was slightly more of, of the problem, like the fact that when you employ, you don't employ Hans Zimmer on a score like this and get him to subsume his own personality, that won't happen Mm. because Mm. he's too strong a composer, he's too identified, it's too much of a brand with Hans Zimmer now, for better or for worse and that that then clashes with the preconceived notions of the Bond brand, as I mentioned earlier. I think most of the time he gets away with it. I mean, in that Cuba chase yeah. sequence, it's brilliant. I think it's it's yeah, really. Yeah. Good. I think it's quite telling. I think you and I think that's probably the best scene in the entire film, right? Certainly musically. Yeah, actually, yeah. I I, I would say that's the best sequence of the of the movie. Yeah, the whole Cuba stuff. 
definitely. Yeah, and um, you know, and then he deploys the Bond theme. I mean, he's really loyal to the Bond theme. You know, he accentuates the electric guitar and the brassiness, and that's great. Like when Bond rocks up in the V8 Vantage, of course you're going to hear the Bond theme. And when I saw it in the in the the, the press preview screening. Um, everyone cheered at that moment and there was a, yeah. there was a real sense of pent up cool. euphoria like we waited so long for this Hans yeah. knew exactly when to deploy the Bond theme and everyone kind of like cathartically erupted in like you know applause and it was really it was really great, <laughs> that's great. and it happened yeah, that's great. You know, it happened during the gun barrel sequence as well at the beginning so it was really yeah. exciting to hear that and really great but you kind of got to think okay you know there's there's nostalgic euphoria and then there's dramatic intuition it's finding mm. the, the the fine line between those two things i think which is often very very difficult i think thomas newman did it very very well in skyfall i know a lot of people disagree with me on that a lot of people don't like the skyfall score i understand the reservations about spectre the score for spectre i think thomas newman did a really good job of working around that atmospheric minimalistic ambience that he's for which he's so famous with the trumpet playing by Derek Watkins who that was that was Derek Watkins last Bond film as mm. I understand it. he died not long after Skyfall came mm. out so I think Thomas Newman did a very very good job with it I think Hans Zimmer does a mostly good job with it but not quite as harmonious as what Thomas Newman did on Skyfall personally largely down to that fight the final passage of music in No Time to Die I think veers it veers too far away from convention for me. And there's no, there's also no, there's no climactic roundup. There's no climactic roundup of like the Bond theme just to tie it all together at the end. I thought, oh, okay, are we going to get like another statement of the Bond movie, of the Bond theme just to bring everything full circle? And it's got, oh no, well, the, it's kind of, I think the, the score the climactic fizzles roundup, out. Well, the climactic roundup really is the, the reprise of Barry. And, and and Louis Armstrong yeah. really that that's that's kind of and it's interesting how that's not on the um, that that final scene and the final use of that music that then flows into Louis Armstrong over the credits isn't actually on on the soundtrack yeah. strangely on Spotify which is a bit weird uh, I don't quite understand why that's not there in many ways I understand maybe why the, that song isn't there because it's probably about money and rights and that kind of thing but it's strange how that's not there. I mean, I'm such a nerd. I've gone into Spotify and I've I've turned the, that that score into my own playlist so I can put the Billie Eilish song after Matera yeah. and and that chasing. Do you know? I can't I can't listen. I have to listen to it in that way because I'm a Bond nerd, um, <laughs> a Bond music nerd. I can't do it in the way they've presented it on the album. But yeah, I think that's kind of the the, the, the climactic. You're, and you're right. There isn't necessarily a big dramatic Bondian climactic musical finish in that sense no I, I agree and it's interesting in a way the film itself kind of ends quite abruptly I thought in a way and I, I think that's partly the point in some sense you know I, there, 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 there isn't a, a level of right well okay on to the next but I don't know it, it's strange it's like yeah I, I, I think it's a great score I, I do I was swept away with it I think the reason I said it's the best one since Casino Royale is that it's the first one since Casino Royale that I just I, I couldn't wait to listen to it again straight afterwards, you know, when I listened to it on its own terms. Uh, and and I, I, I do love a lot of the, the, the combinations of it, really, and, and, and the things it does. I think you've got, you make a really good point about Skyfall, though. It's probably not actually as skilled and as clever in terms of trying to blend the old and the new and, and have that composer's voice in there as, as Skyfall and Thomas Newman's work on that is. As much as that maybe on one level feels so different and i think that's part of the point really i think the skyfall f- mu- score is is really different 
than a lot of the other scores in many ways. Even even the the modern David Arnold ones. It's, the Sky so score, I, it's so elegant. It's really elegant, yeah. even in the action yeah. moments. And I think what Zimmer's, Zimmer's No Time's Die score, effective and enjoyable though it is, the Zimmer score is, to actually quote Bond, it's a blunt instrument. It's you kind of you flip flop very you know Zimmer style Bond style Zimmer style Bond style that that pattern goes all the way through it. Whereas in Skyfall the the the, the, the blur the lines between Thomas Newman and Bond are blurred constantly all the way through, it. and it's much yeah. more it's much yeah. smoother. I think even mm. though I know a lot of people aren't aren't a fan of that score, but I will say I did enjoy No Time to Die. I mean the track called Home, the context of which we can't reveal because it's an important moment. That is beautiful. Mm. And mm, mm. I wish that the score had kind of gone for more of that dramatic way. I mean, the use of the Billie Eilish theme and that with those cooing like vocals. I don't know if that was yeah. Billie Eilish doing that or if they got somebody else doing that. But just those breathy like vocals, not lyrics, just vocal effects. That's really good. That's really eerie. Mm. And you kind of get a sense that Bond is coming to terms with something very, very significant, which he is in the context of that particular. That's probably my favourite track on the album, actually. Um, mm. And it, I think it goes back to my point that what Zimmer is really good at, I would argue what he's best at is dramatic material. It's not action material. What Zimmer does is he he works very, very well with portentous statements of dramatic weight, not not just stuff that's kind of volume, but stuff mm. that is very, very kind of dramatically weighty and is kind of freighted with all manner. I mean, you think of things like the Thin Red Line, um, which I would consider to be Hans Zimmer's masterpiece. I mean, that's an extraordinary score for the Terence Malick film. And, you know, famously, he wrote four hours of music for that. And Terence Malick being Terence Malick chopped and changed and fiddled around with the movie. And most of the music ended up being dropped. But the, the 50 minutes of music that is on that album is remarkable. And I'd say that might be Hans Zimmer's best work. And I think tracks like Home mm. in No Time to Die get back to that kind of Hans Zimmer that I really like, yeah. personally speaking. Yeah. Where, I can see that. You know, whereas the final final action sequences in No Time to Die planes the kind of the sound of Zimmer that I don't like all that much. But you know that that's just me. You know, tastes will vary. It will it will be a subject of some debate. You know, Bond schools always are, and that's the beauty of it. You know, you get so much debate out there, and lots of people talking about it, and that's the great thing. You know, and we'll we're just contributing to that conversation really that will carry on. Um, and it, and it, you know it will be really exciting to see where you know it's going to be exciting to see where Bond goes now anyway because the, it really is a completely new slate in all kinds of ways now and it's going to be fascinating and it, and it will include musically as well you know over the next few years and see quite how that happens you know whether or not you know I mean it's interesting when I talked about Dan Romer at the beginning I've since looked it up and he would worked with Kari Joji Fukunaga who's the director of No Time to Die on previous movies which is why and TV shows, which is one of the reasons why he was originally involved, I think. So it will be interesting to see who, whatever director comes in and starts off this next era of Bond, whether they will bring a composer with them, you know, or whether we'll get David Arnold back, like we say, or whether Hans Zimmer will come back and do it again, you know. It, 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 it's who knows. It's all it's all to play for, and but it's always an occasion. It's always a really exciting occasion because it allows people then to go back and like we've done a little bit, revisit a lot of the Bond music of old, which is some of the greatest film music ever made. And it's always just a lot of fun when, when we get into that. So, um, 
yeah, No Time to Die will be thrashed around for a long time to come yet, I think, which is all part of the beauty of it. I mean, it's just such a pleasure talking about this, isn't it? It's great that, that No Time to Die is the catalyst for talking about this. I mean, we're basically talking about 60 years worth of musical heritage here. Yeah. And there's yeah. so much stuff that we haven't even touched. We haven't even mentioned Goldfinger. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just no, no, quite exactly. extraordinary. <laughs> there's, there's, like, you could do hours. You could do seasons, series worth on this stuff because it's there's masses of it. You know, and it, it, it probably, I think Bond as a franchise has the greatest musical heritage of any cinematic yeah, franchise in yeah, history. Yeah, I agree, yeah. You know? yeah. You know, even including stuff like Star Wars or Star Trek. I, I still think Bond in musically is like, it, it, it's never been it's never been equaled in terms of the reach and some of the things that have been done. I mean, you think of like, the, you know, the guest composer that come in. I love what George Martin did with Live and Let Die. I think that's oh, bit, God, bit yeah, it's brilliant, amazing. isn't it? I mean, just, just yeah. that funky black exploitation sort brilliant. of soul jazz edge, particularly what he does with the Bond yeah. theme. It's just amazing. Um, it's fantastic, yeah. You know, and, and you know, you have the, the, you know, the title track by, you know, Paul McCartney and... And wings, and I know we we had a little we had a little discussion <laughs> online uh, with um, my friend to frame co-host um, Andy about whether whether um, you know Live and Let Die actually constitutes a Bond theme. And I was like, well, it was written for a Bond film, so clearly it is it is a Bond <laughs> theme. I don't quite know how you'd see it and, otherwise. <laughs> Andy had had one too many vodka martinis, <laughs> and, by that and point, we're not assuming that. that he came out and admitted it. So we're, we're not <laughs> he imposing. Did tell that. Us. <laughs> <laughs> so you're forgiven, Andy. Yeah. It's okay. We'll let you off the hook. Yeah. You, you don't your bond card isn't going to be revoked. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, but yeah, it, there's there's so much wonderful musical lineage, and you know the conversation extends onto social media for us. You know, particularly you, you on on Sean on Facebook and some of these um, the, the, these 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 platforms, Instagram and stuff have been uh, putting things up about lists of bond scores and that kind of thing. So you know, go and find that stuff, guys, uh, on our social media because we're talking more about it there as well. Um, you know, I've written. Uh, one review of No Time to Die as well. You, hell, you interviewed Bob Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. I did. We've got to mention this, Sean. We've got to talk about this. I did. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I, I said to you, I messaged you and I said, I genuinely am not one of those people who is that interested in talking to famous people about stuff. I'm, I'm much more, I much prefer the analysing and and all that kind of thing. I'm not I'm not that bothered about interviewing who, who, who knows. And I don't get, but that was like, I am so jealous. <laughs> so jealous of you it's amazing they, 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 they were great I mean it was a very militaristic operation I only got five minutes with both of them and five minutes with Kerry Fukunaga still. Well, still yeah I mean it's a privilege they shaped my childhood with yeah, these films same. yeah and they, they, they've had a huge impact on so many generations of people and Barbara Broccoli said something very interesting about Daniel Craig this might actually bring this podcast full circle actually all the way back to Daniel Craig because ultimately you know yeah. he's one of the reasons why we're here um, one of the main reasons she said he allowed bonds to bleed mm. and she obviously meant mm. that literally but there's obviously also a figurative expression to that as well he bleeds emotionally he, yeah. he's a human being and whatever flaws no time to die has and it's got a lot of flaws um bonds mm. pain not just his physical pain but his emotional pain is very very evident sometimes earnestly so sometimes didactically so but hey at least daniel craig makes us feel it at least it's there yeah and he's not the kind of invisible car driving archetype from Dying of the Day. I mean, my goodness me, like it's just which was just diabolical mm. in, in every sense of the word. But yeah, <laughs> they they were you know they said that Barbara Rockley said that there was diabolical another day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I should have called it. <laughs> right, that's that's what I'm calling it from now. Right, thank you for yeah. giving me that. That's the name of it from You're now. Welcome. Diabolical another day. Diabolical yeah. another day. Yeah. 
And yeah. you know, as for <laughs> Madonna's like rancid horse carcass of a t- of a title song, I mean, honestly, <laughs> just just absolutely terrible. Yeah, in, in, that was awful, with the line, you know, Sigmund yeah. Freud analysed this. I'm like, oh, just go away. Like, for goodness sake, just <laughs> go away and just stop with all yeah. your, you know, your cabalistic, you know, cabalistic nonsense and all your, you know, your foolish movies about Wallace Simpson. And just, just go away and don't ever go near another Bond <laughs> song ever again. You know, it's just. I agree with that. But yeah. they, um, Barbara Broccoli said that there, there was something about, there was a symmetry to Daniel Craig's last ever scene that he shot as Bond. This isn't a spoiler. This is, obviously, this is the last scene that he mm. shot. This isn't, isn't tied up chronologically with the movie. No. But the last no. scene that he shot was Bond running away down an alleyway out of sight. Mm. And she said there was a real poetry to that, eerie poetry. You know, it was on the Pinewood lot, so it was the traditional home of Bond, both the day shift the day shift crew and the nighttime crew were all around because they realised the significance of the moment. They all came around and they all came out to just champion Daniel Craig, you know, who, who has done such a remarkable job of reauthoring this character. He, he's he been great. No matter what flaws the films might possess, mm. he's been... He has been yeah. brilliant. I think I, I I think I honestly think he's the best he's the he's the best James Bond. I, I really believe that now. I th- I think he's I think I know everyone will still say Sean Connery and yes okay I get it. I Sean Connery is my favorite actor of all time. I love him to bits. But I st- I think Daniel Craig has done stuff with this character that is just completely iconic in a in a in a way that bridges all kinds of different eras. I think he's been incredible, really, and, and and he's and he's had some of the best ever Bond movies under his under his belt as well. So I think it, it and and not every Bond can say that, you know. Even even Connery made quite a few iffy ones, you know. So he, he, him and Connery are the two I think that have really elevated this to a different level. Even as much as I love all of them in their own their own ways, I, I he, he is Daniel Craig. It's, Barbara Broccoli has said. They don't know. They don't. They can't quite imagine this without Daniel Craig. And I, I get it because I really think it's going to be different this time. I think that the, I think it's going to be so much harder to replace him after these films and actually try and reconceptualize what this all is now. I, it will be a, a million years harder than it was at the end of of A View to a Kill or License to Kill or Die Another Day. Di- it's just diabolical it's just, another day. <laughs> diabolical another day. Sorry. Yeah. It's called, It's official title now. It's gonna be. It's gonna be really difficult to do it. And it was. It was so nice that that what you just described there was all captured on film. It was in the Being James Bond documentary, which is on Apple TV and been on ITV, where and he does a really emotional final speech to the crew who are all there, Daniel Craig, in which he ba- he does say, I know I know things have been said and I've been grumpy at times about things, but he said this has been the best thing I've ever done, you know. And and you really say you really know it's true, you know, and you know he's gonna miss doing it. And I think even though. He, I don't think he'll 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 be the guy who is a bit like you know he's not going to be Pierce Brosnan when he's sixty five you know doing an audio commentary for Goldeneye on YouTube like you know mm. he's not going to be that but I think I don't think he'll be as bitter and combative as Connery was because I think he's had a much better experience Connery was pissed off about money and he was pissed off about treatment and he was pissed off about lots of things with the Bond makers with Cobby Broccoli and all those guys and I think he was just a bit bitter about it all whereas I don't think Craig will be I th- I think he will go I've done it. I want to do other things. I want to talk, but I think I think he'll I think he'll be much more open about it than Connery ever was. So I, I, it's great because I, I, it feels like he's finished on a really nice note for him, 
and for this franchise. Yeah, he, he and I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, there, there's that line from Mallory Ray finds in um, Skyfall, isn't there? Which is not, you know, what? Why not stay dead? Most most pe- most people don't come out of this clean, referring to the Secret Service, and it's yeah. kind of Daniel Craig has come out of this clean, the cleanest probably yeah, has, of all yeah. the Bond actors, and yeah. it's it's momentous yeah. really. And I do think to link it back to Hans Zimmer's score, Hans Zimmer's score does get a sense of the portent and the magnitude that clearly Hans Zimmer knew what he, he obviously he knew what he was scoring the sheer mm. significance of it like the titanic significance of what we're watching again we're, we're working around spoilers here um for, for the american audience who might not yet mm. have seen this if, they, if they've seen the film if they're hearing this but yeah it's it's, it's a real it's historic it is yeah it, it is. is historic yeah very much so it is a historic moment and it and it will it will be it will be talked about in that vein i think for a long time really and once the dust settles and people are able to talk a lot about what this film does. I think it will be some fascinating conversations to come, to be honest. So it's been great to talk about it. And this won't be the last time we talk about Bond, I'm sure. We'll come back and we'll be doing it again in a few years and as time goes on. But it's been it's been a uh, a, a license to thrill, this has, for the last two hours. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're going to keep doing these monthly ones. Um, and, and, you know, it's Zimmer, it's Zimmer time right now because, you know, next month is June. So... I mean that's going to centerpiece next next month's episode because June will be out at the end of October in the UK and that at second to Bond that has been the film I've been most excited about for the last god knows how many years because I love that book so I can't wait to talk about the score. I, I, I read the book during our first lockdown, so like April 2020, because I'd never read it before. Oh. I was like, ooh, I was like, now I'm really excited about the film. I'm insanely yeah. excited about the film now, yeah. And I've, I've listened yeah. to Hans Zimmer's score. Well, one of them, he's done three scores for it. I've listened to the main score <laughs> all the way through it. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll bring my thoughts to that. Yeah, I'll bring my mm. thoughts along. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. I haven't listened to it. I'm going to wait until I watch the film, I think, and then I'm going to blitz listen to all of them. So, um yeah, it's going to be great fun. You know, there's some, some really good. There's going to be some really good scores out that we'll we'll try and talk about as well. Things like the French Dispatch, Alexandre Desplat, and uh, you know, various different things coming up um, that, that that are going to be great. I think there's some really diverse movies and some really exciting movies in the next few months. So yeah, all that's to come, guys. But um, before we go, then why don't you point people towards where they can find more of what you're up to and um, and and what you are up to generally? Yeah, well, you can find me on Instagram at Shawno34 and on Twitter at Shawno22. Um, my main bread and butter of my work is on cineworld.co.uk forward slash blog, where you can find the full interview with Michael G. Wilson, Barbara Rockley, and, and Carrie Joji yes. Fukunaga. Also on the We Made This Network, uh, I co-host Frame to Frame with um, Andy Williams, who we met, who we mentioned earlier, who um, who no doubt will be smarting from that live and let die conversation. <laughs> bring that up with if he's sobered up, if he's sobered up. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll put him in his place on that. So make sure you yeah. um, you, you um, check us out on Spotify and all your regular podcast providers. Alrighty, amazing. It's great. It's a great podcast, guys. Go and listen to it. I've been on it once, but don't let that put you off. It's been really good. <laughs> that was a great. I love that episode. That was really good fun. It, it, yeah, Harrison films in which Harrison Ford finger points angrily. So that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> and next year, I'm coming back on to do uh, uh, Sean Connery one as well, yes. uh, focused episode, which is going to be great. Um, speaking of Bond stuff, so um, although they're not Bond films we're talking about, but it'll be fun anyway. So yeah, that's great. And uh, you can find me at AJ Black Writer on Twitter mainly. That's mainly where I hang out. But uh, also find uh, me as part of the broader We Made This Podcast Network at WMT underscore Network. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining us generally for another episode. 
Uh, and as I say, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Please subscribe to Between the Notes and give us a rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us get bumped up and noticed. So that'd be amazing if you could just pop along and do that. And if you want to help our network more broadly, if you're liking a lot of the shows on there, please consider supporting us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash We Made This. But film and TV music and James Bond is not all we're discussing on the network. So we'll give you a taste of what else you might have missed on the network in just a moment. Until next time, we hope you enjoy the film music that we discussed. We'll put a little playlist together on Spotify as usual. Um, we hope you stay safe and well. Until we see you next time, discussing the music of film and television between the notes. Elsewhere, and we made this. The Movie Palace Podcast. Nowadays, it's easy to look back, isn't it, Carl, with, with hindsight to say that this is probably one of the greatest films ever made. But at the time, it, it was barely even acknowledged by awards bodies like the Oscars didn't even didn't have a, have a peep at it yeah it's interesting about the awards considering that like you say it's a film that's gone on to be quite regular fixture on lists of greatest films ever made and that kind of thing um, and what I've seen the reviews were pretty positive though you know rock, rock, the reviews are often quite glowing Free with this month's issue. Rachel, when did you get into Nirvana? I think we discussed this last time. I'm a bit younger than you, so <laughs> I was two when Nevermind came out. But yeah. I distinctly remember my mum and my dad. Yeah. They had a VHS that they taped off MTV, MTV Unplugged. Oh, awesome. And I remember watching that. It had Ren and Stimpy on as well. <laughs> and I always really liked him. And I always remember the reason my mum liked it so much is because she was so interested in his cardigan the green cardigan that he was wearing <laughs> which is a very sort of you know twee thing to enjoy but I think he probably would have quite enjoyed that right in the child as a weirdo kid I always thought it would be cool if the doctor regenerated into an alien because it never said that he had to look like look a like human. human. Yeah, that's a good point. And there was one regeneration where it went wrong. Well, they always go wrong, don't they? And there was one regeneration of the master where it went wrong. So he was like this hideous, scarred uh, that's thing. Cool. That, that, that very old episodes. Because I loved the Sylvester McCoy stuff so much that I bought VHS tapes oh, okay. of previous Doctors. So I have quite a big knowledge of... Deep. Deep you know, stuff from way before I was born as well, stuff from the 70s. It's pretty cool. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at Seano22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes. On iTunes, your podcast app of choice. On Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.